Hello, I'm Eagle, Eagle Gardens, Eagle Gardens 1 on Instagram, and this is Fucking Talking Shit with Eagle, episode 247. I have a very, very special guest for you guys tonight, Jim Bennett, or as you guys all know him on the internet, as Clackamas Coot. How you doing, Mr. Coot? How you doing? Tell us how we can find you and how you're doing today. I'm doing well. I uh, was on Instagram for... A bit. I uh, decided to take some time off, and I'm writing a book about uh, organic soils and uh, organic approaches to IPM. Uh, the name of the book is going to be uh, "Benign Neglect," because I think that. Uh, all right, I know for myself anyway. The less I do dicking around with my plants, a better garden I have. Um, plants don't need a lot of human intervention, contrary to the grow books. And, uh, you know, the less build a good soil and water it and uh, keep the bugs off. That's kind of, I know it's not much of a program, uh, but that's my program. So I, I go out of my way to make a good soil. I make uh, top of the line worm castings takes about two years to go from manure to final worm castings through a, a compost process to kill pathogens and then rebuild the soil with, uh, or the, the manu- excuse me, the compost with uh, nutrient dense materials like kelp and alfalfa and some other materials and then run that through the worm bin so that when you're done, you've got a premium humus source and you're not going to have problems with pH or insects or pathogenic uh, molds, powdery mildew being the main one. But understand that around the world there's 4,000 varieties of powdery mildew and uh, some areas of the country like where I live in the northwest because we have a 150 year history of growing plants commercially well, to stay in business in the nursery industry, you have to bring in new plants to keep your, your customer base happy. And those plants always come from somewhere else. And so everybody takes a ride, you know, herbivore insects, new varieties. We've got like almost 400 varieties of powdery mildew west of the Cascades, between the Cascades and the Pacific Ocean. So you got to be on top of things. It's People tell me about, I want to get rid of powdery mildew. Well, you can't. I mean, that's the fact. You you got to deal with this uh, invasive uh, organism and uh, assist your plant in raising its immune system's uh, defenses to have because uh, you can kill. Okay, let's say you have powdery mildew. The old one, this one goes back a hundred years, is to use baking soda. What you're doing there is that you're changing the pH on the leaf uh, with with this uh, material. And you've also probably heard potassium bicarbonate, uh, green clean. That's a, a commercial product that's made with uh, potassium bicarbonate as opposed to sodium bicarbonate. But they both accomplish the same thing. You're changing the pH on the leaf. 
but so that's an eradication, but you've got to step in with a program to prevent a reinvasion because you're not going to, it's not like getting some kind of disease like us and we go get maybe a series of uh, shots, some kind of uh, antibacterial agents. That isn't how it works on plants. These spores are in the air constantly looking for a place to land and eat like any other organism. So to that end, there's things we can do both as foliar sprays and some other things, the disease suppression in uh, worm castings is the stuff of legends. And that goes back to studies done 50 years ago. So this isn't anything new. What's troubling is that this information over all these years, we've had grow books for 40 years, and I don't know of one that that, uh, actually will give you the information you need to grow a successful garden without buying a lot of products at some kind of a hydroponic store. Anyway, that's my mantra and I'm sticking with it. So, so you know, I'm kind of curious to know what led you down the, to this road, you know, what, what created the passion to, you know, create a great soil, you know, what, what got us to Kootzman's basically, you know? Well, uh, the state I live in has a large uh, nursery stock industry, about one and a half billion dollars a year. And like the kind of plants that you find at Home Depot in the spring, you know, the, the uh, arborvitas and junipers, stuff to make your uh, curb appeal. If you're like you're in the real estate business or selling your home, you want curb appeal. What's pretty cool about that is that when the new buyers come in, oh, we got to replace these plants as landscaping's horrible. So you get you get it on both ends. You get uh, money from the seller, and then you pick up revenue from the buyer. So it was a pretty cool deal. Uh, so if, when the real estate market's really active, you can make money, a lot of money. Um, think about this for a minute: an acre of nursery stock is about 35,000 plants, one acre. And uh, nurseries here of 600 to 1,000 acres is not uncommon. So think about how many plants you have on that kind of, you say even 500 acres and you've got 35,000 on each acre for sake of discussion. You can't be dicking around with compost teas and you know, avocados and, you know, this other silliness. So uh, you got to get the soil right because that's just like a farmer does. A farmer doesn't, otherwise we'd be paying $20 for a head of lettuce if we did the practices of the cannabis sector. And uh, so it is a fact that the better the soil we have, the healthier the plant is. And just like us, if we're healthy, we have a, a much better capability of fighting off disease and illness, right? The same is true of plants. You can't weaken them with silly science um, and then expect them to thrive when conditions go south. 
we create our own madness. I, I guess that's what I would say. You know, it's uh, we're just going to blow up basic botany and try to t- make it a chemistry project. That's my objection to, and I did it. I mean, I did, you know, the whole nine yards with the Grodin Rockwell cubes and uh, I fill and drain or ebb and flow, whatever term, you know, they're using today. And even did some of the NFT nutrient flow technique that only lasted about two years. Thank God. Um, that would have been like late eighties, early nineties. So that wasn't a popular, uh, because it was too, too much science involved. You really had to have your uh, pH and uh, EC numbers, uh, you know, just spot on. It was developed by the Israelis. In fact, several hydroponic techniques have come out of Israel. You know, the a product blue mats, the drip system. Okay. That's an Israeli originally. Then it was bought by an Austrian firm and then the rest is history. But yeah, the actual, uh, the cones, that whole concept came out of uh, Israel. A lot of, a lot of horticulture research in Israel because you're talking about a desert. So your agrable land areas, it's like Australia has got a lot of land mass, right? But not so many areas that you can actually produce food because of the terrain, the geology and what have you. And I like good uh, cannabis, you know, that's grown, uh, with good materials, if I got, I mean, I haven't grown forever, but when I got a hold of some publications here in Portland, I learned about these organizations that if you had a medical card, you could participate and pick up cuts, seeds. So I kept, you know, all these uh, strains, I, you know, gee, I don't want to be a piker, you know, I want to get, I got to get a cush or a, a haze or something. So that was my motivation wasn't to get permission from the goddamn state of Oregon to grip pot. Uh, that would have been like turning the clock backwards. You know what I mean? And uh, I just saw these, these patients getting ripped off by these charlatans. Oh, well, you're not going to, you can't really get good medicine unless you use this, you know, some silly product that, you know, $80 a gallon or something. So I just decided to declare war on them. And uh, did a pretty good job. I would say. I would say. So yeah. what? I mean, let's. I mean, let's double back here. I mean, so when did cannabis enter life? When did? I mean, so we've got a little bit of handle on, you know, when the 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 soil things comes into play. But when did cannabis come into play? Do you mind telling me a little bit about your cannabis journey? Okay. Well. Um, I was in Southern California and then found myself back in Southern California in mid seventies. I'd been in the army and went and did this thing in Kentucky on the Mississippi and Ohio rivers at Marine surveying. And it was a little too, uh, <clears throat> oh, what's the word? Well, there's a lot of difference between Missouri and uh, Newport beach, California. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> San Diego isn't, you know, St. Louis either, but whatever. And uh, so I was involved with people that were, had connections with the group that uh, 
is responsible for bringing in all the hash in the late 60s, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love in Laguna Beach. And so they had these connections with real, for really good, while everybody else was smoking that horrible stuff called Colombian, which I have my doubts, since the uh, bags were stamped industrial products of Argentina. But if you look at a map of South America, it doesn't make sense, but anyway. I'll, I'll let that one drop. And so, but we would, you know, sell the bad crap in bulk so that we could buy this new thing that came in in the winter of 76, which was tie sticks. And that was like the first real, oh, so this is what, this is what weed's supposed to be like. Okay, I get it. You know, this stuff was religious, you know, religious experience. So when later, much later, in the late 80s, when the Dutch seed companies got going, there was uh, Neville's uh, the Seed Bank, and he pretty much focused on uh, skunk from uh, Dave Watson, Sam the Skunk Man, uh, Skunk Number One, and then uh, Northern Lights, that series, the 5, 7, 9, and 11 that he picked up up in... Uh, Canada. And then the other group was the today's uh, Sensi Seeds, but then it was called uh, SSSC, the Super Sativa Seed Club. And uh, they fully acknowledged in their listings of their strains that, yeah, we got this one from this group in Oregon, and this one came from that group in Oregon, uh, Sacred Seeds, and the one that... Uh, their 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 main strain i understand i'm not a seed guy so I'm, but they have uh afghani then hashtag and numeral one afghani number one well that one in the catalog states that they bought that from sacred seeds in southern oregon and uh then you look at neville's uh i mean all the northern lights those were from well, it depends who you talk to, Washington or Southern Canada. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think of some of the others. Yeah, they had, they had, and they had, they were the one that brought Ruderalis to the party. What we used to call a Siberian ditch weed. And uh, today it's called autoflowers or something. And uh, no comment, you know. Um, I used to have this as a tagline on my post and when in the pre-social media days when you had forums like IC Mag, Grass City, those kinds of venues. And on the bottom of my post, I had a permanent. Once you devolve the wolf down to a chihuahua, there's no bringing it back. And that's kind of my feeling about uh, what passes for you know, cannabis today, at least in Oregon, there's a place out the end of my street. And this today they had one of those uh, folding A-frame signs. Uh, see, one gram pre-rolls, $2. $2, and then the other day it was $40 for an ounce. I'm thinking $640 for a pound? That's like 1972 prices for uh, Panama Red. 
so this is what, you know, legalization has brought us. Basically, if you're going to grow cannabis, you're going to be a slave to the dispensary system and the brokers and the, the other charlatans involved. But at least here in Oregon, we can grow four plants, period. I don't need a license. I don't need a medical card. I don't need anything. Uh, four plants and I can have on my person a pound and a half. 24 ounces. I can have it in my knapsack if I ride the bus. I can have it laying on the front seat next to me in my car. I mean, it's pretty... I guess this is probably as close as I'm ever going to see legalization. As, you know... And then we just passed... uh, What do you call it? Oh, psilocybin research. At at a statewide level, past 55 to 45. That's pretty amazing. So it's going to allow for legitimate research and uh, using psilocybin to treat uh, depression, anxiety, uh, addictions, into life issues, uh, helping people make that transition to accepting, not to make them happy, but to an acceptance of being able to look at a life lived and, and be content with, make, make things easier, I guess. I don't know how else to put it. So I'm really excited about that. I, you know, um, really excited. And uh, from personal experience, I've been microdosing for a couple of years now. So uh, I grow my own medicine. And uh, I just, I avoid the cannabis industry because it's, it's shaken out, you know, who knows. Right now, the, uh, in my opinion, the quality is not of, doesn't seem to be a priority. When you're just going to grow some goop to go into a gun, you know, a cartridge, I mean, how good does it have to be? You know, <laughs> it's not exactly like Kulikan or Ohakan Spears or, you know, the, the flowers from Sri Lanka or Nepalese temple balls hash, you know, it's just, just dope. You know, it's just, yeah. Whatever. Hopefully, that's just uh, what you're seeing there is on a larger scale. I mean, myself, I'm still, I enjoy the flower more than anything. You know, I enjoy the dab here and there, but my main goal isn't necessarily, I'm not a, a resin farmer. <laughs> I'm not a resin farmer. You know, I'm, I'm really still taking a dead on dabs maybe possibly three times. And it, and it was only because somebody had taken my flowers. I gave it to it wasn't like that. But, I mean, I said, well, here, let's try making some with some something really good. And, yeah, it was all right. I just, I don't know. It's not this. It ain't Woodstock, all right, you know. So, uh, I, like, I like good flowers, you know, that are, that are grown correctly. And that's by somebody that gave a shit, you know. And uh, not just production numbers and end of the year harvest to make sure everybody gets paid, you know, that kind of stuff. I can't believe that $40 an ounce price. I mean, that just scares me. I mean, oh, yeah. As a, as, as a grower, I mean, even as a consumer, I should be even more cons- afraid. Like you said, what could be, you know, all levels of I give a shit it's gonna be right out the window at forty dollars an ounce there. 
Yeah. It's got to be uh, mass produced, you know. Yeah, it's garbage. I'd stay out of it because it's. Uh, I got into this to help people, uh, medical growers. I, you know, I don't really care about the commercial crowd. They're going to do whatever they're going to do, and they got bankers pulling the strings. You keep in mind, Oregon was the only state that allowed outside international money in. So when this thing went legal, you had banks in Asia, banks in Europe, and the money that flowed into this state was unparalleled. I mean, I saw some uh, greenhouses. I am just looking at them going, how much you got in this thing? I mean, there's not one single greenhouse in the state of Oregon that came close to these. Um, so if, if the point was how much can we throw at this and still get a profit as it turned out, I don't know, but you exceeded it because a lot of people got out after that first year or reduced their license. See here, you had a 20,000 square foot and a, a, about a half acre, more or less. And then a 40,000, about an acre. Those were the two licenses. And, uh, some licenses of 40,000 got returned and reduced to, at their request to the 20,000. Uh, Cause you can't sell it out of state legally. There's the other problem. If you saw how much was in, uh, well, they call it cold storage. It's frozen. I mean, it's like you do, what do you do with beef? You got a whole bunch, you put it in cold storage. So and then the, uh, this one really cracked me up. And I want you to think about this from the perspective of a, of a farmer, of anything. Say, it doesn't matter. Just pick a crop. So one of the uh, statewide associations related to cannabis, and there's a bunch. You're the what now? The amalgamated growers? Of, yeah. oh, oh, you're the unified growers. Of, oh, okay. So uh, they complained to the state legislature that they needed to restrict how much you could produce. Can you imagine the soybean growers going in front of Congress and asking for restrictions that restrict other growers, what they can produce so you can make more money? I mean, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Hey, this ought to be good. Yeah. I watched it with you know, just from a distance, just shaking my head. You don't even get it. Do you? You know, when you farm, you're, that's your goal is to produce as much as you can. Regardless of whatever you're growing, watermelons or tomatoes or soybeans or whatever. Not have the state come in and say, well, no, you need to cut back because Joe over here isn't making the money he thought he would. Oh, okay. And it's such crazy market on the West Coast anyway. I mean, California is probably the worst cannabis state there. Uh, I mean, things go crazy over there on the West Coast. I mean, we at least have a somewhat of a stable market, but it isn't, you know. We don't, we're not, Michigan's not asking us to cut back for the big guys yet, that's for sure. I don't think, I don't think we'd stand for it, to be honest with you. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Well, you know, we were the first state back in 70, yeah, 72, 73, we're the first state to decriminalize cannabis. So if you got caught with 28 grams or less, 
it wasn't a even a misdemeanor. It's just a violation of the law. So you paid it like parking ticket, more expensive than a parking ticket, but still, you know. So that was during Vietnam War, and you could come out to Oregon, go to school and get a student affirmant and stay out of the draft and basically smoke weed without worrying too much. So it really filled up the colleges. So we, we've had this 50-year history, almost 50 years, of a very casual attitude towards cannabis in general. And uh, we were the first state to have a, a cohesive medical program. Originally, there were eight conditions and that qualified you to get a card. And then later, they added a couple more. And I couldn't tell you. But anyway, it ended up with around 10. And uh, that allowed you to grow six plants in flower, 18 plants in veg, Clones didn't count because they didn't have roots. That was just considered plant material. And you could have up to a pound and a half of stash. Don't want to run out. Yeah, okay. (laughs) 24 ounces a week. But uh, then let's legalize. And I was one of those going, careful what you wish for. You're not going to like this. And uh, sure enough, it was worse than I could have imagined. But they did, because basically, like most other states, it was the lobbyists that wrote the law, right? And so a few diehard, I would like to think of them as, as progressives, got into the law that you could grow four plants. Each household, not person, but each household could grow four plants. Well, come on. I mean, you can't take care of your action with four plants. You know, maybe get a job as a greeter at Walmart and take that profit from that and find somebody that grows and just buy it from them. But I mean, you know, say you're great. It didn't say how big the plants had to be. If you wanted to grow in 800 gallon containers, right? That's four yards. Uh, Think of, let's see, that would be, let's see. We do my arithmetic really quick. Um, That would be uh, 200 bags of soil, 800 gallon container. So you can build, you can build a serious soil at that level for sure. And the thing is with an organic soil, it's going to be better the next year. You don't start over. A, a soil is a, a living entity. It has a life. And I've posted on my uh, Instagram feed a couple times, a soil that was mixed with my uh, help, five years old. And you look at the macro micronutrients and it blow you away. The soil gets better. This idea that you need fresh soil is quite frankly in the world of organics bizarre. I mean, what to, to what end? So you keep the microbes alive because that's what's feeding the soil, uh, feeding the plant. Feed the microbes and the, the microbes will feed the plant. Your enzymes, uh, 
the phytohormones uh, that are released from the materia that are deconstructed by the microbes, the uh, bacteria, protozoa, fungi. It's pretty cool. I well, I I enjoy good soil growing cannabis myself, but uh, you know I'm one of them people that were actually as I learned to grow too. It was always taught that uh, you know you did chuck that soil if you were in soil back then, just you know, in in worries of something bad being in the soil. That's what we were always taught: chuck it because there could be something you know bad in there, and so. You know, if I'm reusing the soil, how can I ensure that, you know, it's got everything in there that I need for the second round? You know, how how can I ensure that uh, all all the cylinders are firing correctly in between rounds? Well, the uh, worms can only eat the manure of microbes. They don't, they lack teeth. They don't have a stomach. So it's bacteria primarily in, in, in vermicomposting that deconstruct the OM, organic material, and their manure, exude, whatever term you want to use, is what's sucked up by the worms and in their digestive tract, it's converted to castings that are literally covered with a slime made of calcium carbonate. So when you use really good quality castings, you're not going to be dealing with pH issues. You're not going to be dealing with calcium lockouts, real or imagined. Um, You don't need wet Betty from advanced nutrients, you know, or some other silly name, uh, you know, you don't need a new program. You don't need home and garden or, you know, botanic care. You put all your energy into making the best compost that you can and converting that over to vermicompost. And um, you're not going to have anything like in the way of uh, burning the plants. You're not going to walk in one day and go, oh, I think I put too much nitrogen or whatever, you know, pick an element, you know, that you... You're not going to have any of that. And the other thing is, is that it's okay to uh, do a test, whatever makes a person feel good. You know, that's what you need to do to feel good. Fine. Go do a test. But what can't show up in the test is the bioavailability of that potassium. There's a lot of ways to get potassium in the soil. And some are better than others, just like in... You know, he said, I'm going to make a sandwich. Okay. There's a difference between using something than, than Oscar Mayer bologna. And it's the same thing in how we amend our soils. The things that I recommend have, are some of the oldest plants on this uh, planet. Kelp, algae, marine algae. Why? Because it's a plant that lives in water. And it takes, it has nothing, it has no root system. So it strictly pulls in any element that it wants, 83 in total. And the important part is that it's in the right balance, not according to what the fertilizer salesman wants you to think. 
So you're not going to have crazy calcium numbers. Why, why is that? Well, because, uh, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah said it's better to have, you know, something or whatever. Um, yeah, the proof is in the pudding. I mean, you look at plants grown by really good organic growers. They're larger, they're healthier. The leaf structure is outrageous. I mean, they look like they're ready to take care of business. I remember the first time I grew, uh, what's that one? Oh, yeah, the one from about 11 years ago, OG Kush. I've never used so many bamboo sticks to hold a plant up. It was a genetic train wreck. Jesus. I mean, imagine if you had a field of that. Imagine if you had 2,000 plants. You get to hire that many workers to go out there and stake this thing up? I mean, come on. Sounds like you had a couple of nice OG cushions over there is what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's... Uh, I'll leave that one a little bit. I just think that if all of us... I don't care what we're growing. Tomato, if, you're, if you're growing food for your family and raised beds instead of having a yard like I do... I'm more concerned about how the tomatoes are going to turn out than obsessing about whether I need to add more soluble potash to achieve dankdom, according to the kid at uh, Canacon. You know what I mean? <laughs> I just uh, build a good soil. Don't go crazy with the amendments. And plants are really good at converting sunlight into chlorophyll, and that's what plants are here for. You know, you look at the molecule of uh, chlorophyll, there's one magnesium in a whole molecule of chlorophyll. There's one magnesium ion, one. Please explain to me the concept of magnesium hungry plants. Is it a special form of, cal- of uh, chlorophyll that has two magnesium atoms because it's cannabis? I don't know. So. Chris Martinez in, set, in chat would like to know, uh, how, is it possible to bring back a soil that's had salts run in it? Can you bring it back to life? Yes, microbe remediation. We're going to use uh, mycelium, and we can use the easiest mushroom in the world to grow, which is the oyster mushrooms. Um, if your uh, listener, listeners are interested, go to mushroommountain.com. And it's the website of a gentleman by the name of Trad Cotter, who is uh, in South Carolina. He wrote a book called Organic Mushroom Farming and Microremediation. We can reclaim poisoned water, poisoned soils with mycelium. But in this month's blog, he's got an article on how to rejuvenate your potting soil using mycelium and you don't have to have a lab to do this what i'm going to this is the reader's digest so okay so we're going to take some straw not hay straw and we're going to use water and cows uh uh let's see hydrated lime okay and that's we'll pasteurize that straw now we're going to drain that and let it kind of 
dry out a little bit. We're going to put it on top of our raised beds, our pots, whatever, whatever we're trying to recycle. Okay. And then we're going to hit it with, and you can buy this online from a number of sources. Uh, you're going to buy spawn or uh, oyster mushrooms. And you're going to spread that spawn on top of that hay and it will colonize that straw and put mycelium down into the soils, deconstructing the roots from the previous plant, right? As well as the stock. And think of all the energy that's still contained in those roots in spite of the fact that we harvested the plant. It's still backlogged with elements, the nitrogen, potassium, you know, the NPK, the micronutrients, right? So we're going to release that into the soil. So that soil is going to be better than it was before we started at the first of the season. And we can work, uh, say, farmland that was uh, farmed uh, commercially, you know, with the pesticides, fungicides, herbicides, that what have you. Well, we can use mycelium to deconstruct those chemical compounds turning them into base elements. And now we've got a fighting chance to rebuild that soil. That's why the term is used soil building. It's not an instant, you know, if, if instant gratification is the hallmark of your purchase program, you're going to be sorely disappointed. It is anything you want to do in life. It's going to take some time. You want to re rebuild a car. You know, re, re, say you're going to uh, restore a, a classic car or something. You don't do it in a, six months. That's at the TV show or something. But, you know, well, building your soil up. So at the end of five years, let's say, you could have soil that was producing five, six times the amount of produce in your front yard for you and your family. And in these times, that probably would be a bad idea. But at least you would learn what that takes, and then you could translate that over into growing medicine, cannabis medicine. Runboy7426 would like to know, can the mushroom uh, cleanup be done with a new uh, crop in place? Oh, yes. There's a book called Mushroom Cultivation. Uh, it's, there's, you can get it as an e-book or printed. I strongly recommend it because it's how to grow different varieties of mushrooms like bluets, oysters, uh, wine caps, in and amongst our vegetable plants. So what does that do? Well, that raises the tilt of that soil. So think of it as companion planting. So uh, that fungal mycelium network is going to work in harmony with the bacteria colonies and protozoa and what have you. So that you're going to get a more, hmm, for lack of a better phrase, a well-rounded soil with a higher tilth for healthier plants and healthier plants cause you less work because they're very adept at taking care of themselves unless they get hit with something out of some factory in you know, Oolong uh, province in China with a nice label on it. You know, here's one for you. Look up banana oil sometime. Probably think it comes from a banana, right? <laughs> it's just a chemical that smells like banana. 
So it's sometimes right. used in uh, new uh, pro products for that tropical, it'll give your plants tropical flavors. Really? It will? Oh, okay. That's going to be quite a trick. But commercially, it's allowed so, to be used as banana oil. It's widely used in banana products like puddings, you know, ice cream, candies. But it has nothing. It's never. It's never been anywhere near a banana. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, that seems almost impossible. I mean, how it, almost mislabeling. I mean, yeah. just because it looks like and smells like it's it's now. It is that it does. It seems very misleading. Well, the other thing that I am known for is uh, I figured out that we could add uh, the same kind of barley to our soil that they use to make beer, malted barley, and uh, that it would increase the microbial levels in our soils and worm bins. And the more that we can do that means that more food is available to the microbes. And again, uh, the bacteria, you know, just like any other organism, you some, take something in, part of it comes out in the form of exude, manure, what, excrement, whatever term you want to use, right? So that's what worms can eat. And so we can increase the microbe level of our worm castings and elevate that. And that only takes like a season. I mean, give me a worm bin and not even a season, give me a worm bin in six months and I can at least double the uh, profile, nutrient profile of those castings with very inexpensive amendments. Kelp meal, uh, barley, malted barley, uh, some, uh, I see alfalfa, alfalfa meal. That's gold. I mean, alfalfa meal is available in anywhere. It's usually under $20 for 50 pounds. And you'd be hard-pressed to find a better fertilizer than alfalfa. So you don't have to spend $80 on some crazy name in a bottle that I mean, you read the label and you're going, what? You know, especially now, pull out your cell phone and look up that term. You know, whatever whatever's on the label, you just start laughing your ass off, you know. So I guess uh, Chad West in Westport would like to know, do you encourage, and I think I already know the answer to this, do you encourage high sugar inputs during veg uh, for branch growth? No, which I'm hearing water only. So, no <laughs> uh, inputs like that. I guess you know. In fact, I changed the name at the height of all of that. Molasses this, molasses that. You know, I just changed the spelling to mole hyphen asses, and uh, just to annoy them. Yeah, I mean, it sounds all groovy, doesn't it? Well, yeah. If you just put some sugar in the soil, it'll take it up in the plant, and then it'll be sweet smoke. Yeah. Well, along the way, science. The truck ran over you in that one, you know. Um, to really understand a plant and, and the, the uh, production of uh, terpenoids, terpenes, terpenoids, and ketones, okay? Below the soil line, everything is controlled by the taproot. 
the tap root puts out specific uh, exudes that trigger microbial responses to make available this or that element, molendimum or what a potassium, whatever, right? Above the soil line, the plant's brain centers are the Mary stem. That's what controls the production of specific terpenes and terpenoids and ketones. Some are there to fight off uh, insect repellents. Others, uh, terpenes and terpenoids are there to attract pollinators. Some of them are act as fungicides. Now, this is really kind of cool. Let's say that uh, the plant has produced an exceeding amount of fungicide terpenes, okay? And a few insects land on a leaf. Within 15 minutes, that plant can take compound A, because they're all hydrogen, carbon, and oxygen, period. Some of them are just carbon and hydrogen. I don't remember which one's which. Terpene has oxygen or it doesn't. You see what I mean? Terpenes and terpenoids. And even botanists get the two mixed up. But one of them has an oxygen component. The other one does not. But So I'm just going to use the word terpenes. It can convert that terpene from a fungicide to a pesticide in a matter of 15 minutes. All right, some pine trees, not all, some conifers produce both apinine and beta-pinene. When a beetle, a boar, begins to attack the bark, it merges those two and it creates what you and I would know as turpentine. And it's a, it's a plant's defense system. So this thing is an ongoing dynamic constantly. So when somebody tells me that, well, yeah, you can control the terpenes by adding this or that to the soil. Really? Oh, that's pretty, that's pretty, uh, that's some really good science there. Did that come out of Reader's Digest or, you know, what, home and garden? What? I mean, you know. anyway, if, if you really want to study it, there's a, a PhD in Tel Aviv University and he wrote a book and there's also a companion website called What a Plant Knows. And I would just visit, uh, encourage everyone just to uh, uh, visit the website, the companion website, and just look over the material and get a good grasp on what exactly and why these terpenes and terpenoids are produced and how they're used to facilitate the main goal of a plant is to reproduce like any organism. And along the way, it, it powers the entire planet through uh, photosynthesis. Because at the bottom of the food chain, everything eats plants, right? So, or the, or the product of plants, the fruit, the berries. The, so think about that one for a minute. Thank God no one's out there checking the pH in the ancient forest. Yeah, I think we need some dolomite lime over here. You know, so. so you don't think that the soil offers any terpenes uh, from, you know, production? It's not taking any of uh, the terroir, basically, out of the soil into the plant? I'm sorry? So you don't think that it's uh, none of the, the soil is not responsible for any of the terpene production? Is that what I'm get, 
interior. It's all up top. That it's mainly no, the uh, environment. That's these are defense and and for procreation reasons. Like, like I said, pollinator attractors. It, it'll put out the the uh, the smells that would attract a butterfly, but repel hopefully successfully uh, mites and aphids. I mean, think about it. If that were possible, then I, I guarantee you that one of the big universities that's really heavily invested in plant science research, like UC Davis, they'd have a chocolate-flavored uh, strawberry a long time ago. I mean, you know, it's... Uh, I well, I, you know, one of the reasons I... I, I know I'm going to... I'm just... I, I'm probably setting myself up from a... a, a, a Coop punch to the face here, but <laughs> no, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, at one point I did experiment uh, with the Terpinator. Basically, you know, it it added uh, a little bit of flavor to the plants there. Lemonine uh, is basically yeah, I can tell you how where that came to the plant. Okay, Terpinator. Basically, you know, everything you to ended up like everything tasted like it. Everything tasted like it, so you know it had to have you know uptake took it somehow. You know okay. what I mean? Because strains that didn't taste like lemon now tasted like lemon, and I was like, "Oh man, I gotta get this out of here. This just ruined my garden." Is all it did. It didn't hint anything. It just blended everything to a net uh, where uh, it was just part of everything. It was like, oh. No, it's okay. You mentioned Turpinator. That's one of my favorites. So if you type in the word Turpinator in a search engine and put a colon and then two spaces and then type in MSDS and hit return, up will come the, the filing that the company made, all right, with the uh, USDA. And it has what's in it. And you're not going to like it, so but I'll tell you what it is. It's sulfate of potash, okay? And one of the issues with core, but it's easily dealt with, is that core can, it does, contains zero sulfur, none. And sulfur is at the base of almost every metabolical function on this planet, including the productions of terpenes and terpenoids. So the majority of that benefit came from the sulfur that's in that. That's all that's in it is sulfate of potash, which you can buy. And you're not going to like this one either. You can buy that for a 50-pound bag for about, I don't know, $11, I think. Uh, Make your own. Uh, Just read on on the MSDS what the percentage is and figure out how much of that powder you'd have to add to a gallon of water and there's your own, you know. It sounds cool though, Turpinator. But it, yeah, it's sulfate of potash. So it has sulfur and uh, and uh, potassium. Sorry. So so what? where does the limamine come from, that lemon flavor? Why, why is it just, I mean, actually, you know, I would never use it, they put the Purpinator. But I mean, that burned me out with that product because it wasn't in it. I, okay, let's put it this way. Uh, I, if I were to add the, you know, um, Epsom salt to my, my plants, I would, expre- I would 
I would expect a little bit of increase in terpene profile. So if that's, you know, the potash and sulfur, I would expect it to not kind of individually boost terps, its own terps, not necessarily blend them across the board. Epsom salt is magnesium sulfate. So, see, we're right back to it's the sulfur. Yeah, yeah, that's what, you know. This is a problem for flower growers. I mean, commercial, you know, that's a big business, Uh, especially around you know, holidays and Mother's Day and Valentine's Day. I mean, long stem flowers, a lot of money, a lot of money. And core is a preferred method of growing because it's sterile. The medium is sterilized before it's used. The better stuff anyway, the stuff out of Sri Lanka and the white, the white uh, 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 cocoa. But the flowers don't have any smell because the big component for that whole metabolical process, sulfur is missing. So when you add uh, Epsom, you're adding magnesium sulfate. And in the form of the product terpenating, you're adding sulfate of potash. But the sulfate, I promise you, that's your big one. If you were to get elemental sulfur, which is not expensive at all, at all, and mix it with some water and apply it to your plants, you would see what I'm talking about. You would get a much stronger aroma and flavor profile just through the addition of sulfur. And because, I mean, I, while I've not, not done that, I do understand from the, the nursery perspective why it's not in there. But you're growing a plant that where flavor and aroma is a big mark of quality, or, or um, one of the big markers of quality, not to, not to forget uh, the effect. So, yeah, just try it. Get some elemental calcium, elemental sulfur. You probably get it at Amazon. This isn't, you know, it's not dangerous because it's probably going to be in the form of SO4. That's uh, sulfur oxide. SO, yeah, for this. For each uh, sulfur ion, there's four oxygen ions, and it's water-soluble. Do it on a test plant. You'll see what I mean. You'll see a healthier plant, too, and more able to resist uh, invaders because it'll have the ability to produce the terpenes and terpenoids to fight off pathogenic uh, fungi as well as uh, pesticides or pests. Yeah, I, I knew it was the sulfur end of it that was helping me with the turfs. That's why I actually called out the the Epsom salt there. I actually did not know of the the elemental uh, sulfur that you're telling you're telling us about now. Otherwise, I would uh, maybe have tried that in the past instead of you know the Epsom I'm salt. I'm not recommending that we're this. Kind of prone I'm not to use. recommending this. Well, I can. 30 years ago, it was not uncommon for growth stores to rent sulfur burners to you, the customer, and then you would buy it at really inflated prices, this sulfur, and you'd put it in a burner and then ignite it in the sulfur fumes. When you burn it, now you had sulfur dioxide, 
Okay, that's what acid rain is attributed to the burning of high sulfur coals, right? So I thought that was like dumber than dumb because why don't you just put a sign out, marijuana grow? I mean, you know, somebody walking by your house and it smells like sulfur, that's not too common, you know. Uh, but anyway, that was uh, 30 years ago, that was... Uh, you were really, you were really uh, dialed in if you had a sulfur burner. So that's not a recommendation. Just... Fa- well, well, yeah, well, you called it out rather than the Epsom salt is basically what I was saying. You know, in place of uh, the Riffin Fat Boy would like to know: Did you ever uh, experiment with any kind of garlic profile plants back in the day, or in the day? I mean, like the uh, garlic bud, I, I guess, I believe, because yeah. there was, uh, Neville had a garlic bud uh, variety, and I think that came from uh, Sam the Skunk Man, and that would have been from Central, Cal- yeah, more Central California. See, that was a whole different scene. I was down in Southern California, and, it, you know, it's uh, 400 miles a long way, long distance. And uh, there was that scene there and whatever it was that was we had was going on. thing we had was weather. Can you imagine having Mediterranean climate? You could grow 12 months out of the year. So you could start your plants like, say, in January and say it was a, a equatorial sativa and run it till the middle of December. I mean, <laughs> got to have a little patience for that, but, you know. So, and there was a lot more availability. Of, of I, that. I enjoyed the. I was going to say I enjoy the sativa, but man, I really don't have the patience for that, yeah. that long term sativa. But man, that's definitely where it's at. Yeah, the one that I uh, I have called the TO. You can take it down at twelve weeks. But you let it go for 18 weeks and you got stuff that you'll be talking about for the next 10 years, you know. I mean, just really loopy. And then, you know, cure it for, I don't know, six, seven months. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, got, you know, it's like making wine. So when I was a young man, they had these wines that really weren't wine like uh, Valley High and Annie Greenspring, you know, these pop wines. Okay, and then, you know, as a society, the wine thing changed, and now people are talking about drinking, you know, 10-year-old Burgundies, you know, the whole thing changed. So I'd hate to see cannabis turn into that cheesy wine era, where it's just pop it out, you know, we'll hit it with this and hit it with that and give it a flavor profile. And I don't know, it just seems like it's lacking a soul. You know, there's, there's a little more to cannabis than just putting it in a cartridge and, you know, I don't know. I, I find I'm disappointed that things evolved the way they did. If you know, I devolved, I think it's, Maybe not not evolved, but devolved, and uh, 
you know, there's just no, there's no soul. I mean, really $40 an ounce. My God, that's a dollar fifty a gram. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's that's crazy. I mean, it isn't here here yet. That's for sure. I mean, so how long has it been that bad in Oregon? I mean, what's that? How how bad? How long has it been like that in Oregon? How long has it price? Oh, three years like ago. See, before we had medical dispensaries. And you had to have a medical card. It was something you had to renew every year. And uh, then, I guess it was 2016 or 17, the first of the recreational, they called it. <laughs> okay. And uh, the standards were lower as far as inspection. On the medical, they were still pretending you know, they caught a, a few, they would catch products that had residues, especially pesticide and fungicide. You can't grow an organ without, you got to have a good ha- handle on, on uh, powdery mildew. Because if you don't, you're going to have a hard, a hard, hard time. And trying to get it, especially under the medical laws, to get it in a dispensary. Now, the recreational of the state kind of took the position, hey, screw them. You know, uh, buyer beware. Okay, um, it's it's a mess. And then they, for a while, they had like they would have a sign, medical or recreational, what they were allowed to sell to. I don't know what the current law is. I've never bought any of it. I wouldn't. Um, I don't want to support that. I'd really get a black market and uh, let that person get all the money because they did all the work. You know, I don't want to enrich brokers and dealers and distributors. And, you know, it just, you know, it's just another business. Might as well be talking about, you know, selling uh, squirt guns or something, you know, set up a shop at the Saturday market and stack and beat, charge them cheap. It's crazy that they just had a fragrant disregard, you know, about pretty much health. You know, eh, heck with it. If it's, you know, wreck, then eh, buyer beware, as you say. You know, that's that's crazy to believe that they take that stance. Do you think that uh, that that just goes right, you know, from the wreck side to the medical side and the price goes up, just goes up? Is the only oh, sure. difference from medical side to I just had this conversation with somebody earlier and he goes back to the mid seventies as far as growing. So 45 years, long time. And my position is opinion is that as long as there's any tinge of illegality to this, then you're going to have this. If this thing were like fairly dealt with, like it should be no more, no different than growing tomato plants. I mean, the party would be over. You'd find one friend in your group that knew what they were doing and people could chip in a hundred bucks and he'd grow, you know, 10 plants. And just like you do with hogs, you know, in some parts of the country, your cousin Billy, 
you know, knows how to take care of hogs better than you do. So he grows them for the family. Then you slaughter them, dress them. You know, not everyone has, I hate this stupid term, but not everyone has a green thumb. Some people are just too intellectually lazy to learn anything about it. They think, well, it's, it's just a weed. So, I mean, what's, what bottle do I need? And I used to love watching, because I'd go into grocery stores to buy my light bulbs or I pick them off on their lost leaders. They weren't, weren't making any money off smart pots and, uh, you know, bulbs. And I'd see these guys walking out with four or $500 and talk about this street of broken dreams. You know, good luck uh, pulling this one off. We've all been there. I mean, we've all grown cycles and sometimes things just go south. I don't know. They're not planned. But you're right. And, uh, you know, they do go south sometimes, but you can't give up. I mean, right. Yeah. Learn from our mistakes and march on and do better. Most of the mistakes I, I made, were, huh? But there's sometimes where I'm, I almost think you should give up. <laughs> and not without calling any anybody out or anything. But I've heard some stories lately of, uh, you know, people just throwing outrageous money at grows. I had the top nutrients. I had the best lights. This thing was costing me outrageous amounts of money every month. Well, I'm sorry, but if you're throwing the best of everything at it and you still can't make it work, well, I don't know. <laughs> oh, see, that's, that's the Probably myth. doing something wrong by trying to throw all the best things at it. Well, see, that's the myth. It's somehow this guy's ammonium nitrate is different than that guy's ammonium nitrate. And I'm here to explain that it's the same. I don't care what the label on the bottle looks like. I mean, my running joke about advanced nutrients it is, is that it's neither advanced or a nutrient. Um, I mean, you know, you start looking at the label and you're going, what? I wouldn't, what, why would I want to use this on my soil? You know, if if it's that big a deal, then, you know, plan an extra plant or something. I don't know. Look how we look what we've done to our, our food system. Have you ever bought a good tomato in the last 20 years in a grocery store? No, no maybe a couple vine, vine tomatoes, but they tasted all right, but they weren't incredible. Yeah. You know, and what do, is it that most, not most, but a big market of and the uh, home garden thing is tomatoes, tomatoes and corn. All right, and why is it that there's such a demand for heirloom? Because those seeds and strains that haven't been destroyed through engineering by Monsanto and the University of California Davis and their plant uh, genetic management program. Uh, and I think the same could be said about cannabis. You know, the closer that a person can get to something that isn't, I mean, some of the time when people, when I first started asking people online, so what's in that? 
and they had this list and it was like, really? I mean, is this like a pedigree or is this your imagination or, you know, 20 strains? Oh yeah. Then it was crossed back to the Peyton Manning cushion. And then, you know, uh, and then the Obama cushion and then, uh, you know, the purple haze and just on and on and on. So, you know, one thing that cannabis has never lacked the sector for 50 years is the ability to really uh, wrap a good story around a, a bag of buds, you know. Oh, yeah, this came from the West Mountain on Sri Lanka in the North End. Wow. Well, speaking of uh, cannabis stories, this, is a, this you left me a good place placement for this here question. <laughs> uh, Maxi751 uh, says, uh, Coot, the other day you were going to say what you thought was in the haze, but you were interrupted and never said, never said. Could you comment on the haze? Okay, so here's the problem that I have with the haze is that uh, for many years, one of the busiest uh, cannabis venues was uh, Icy Mag, Gypsy Nirvana's deal. And uh, one of the senior moderators was Sam the Skunk Man, David Watson. And he is the one that facilitated the haze going to Neville because Neville had a strain called Hayes Northern Lights, uh, number five, I believe. Don't hold me to that one, but it was Northern Lights. That's the only seat I ever bought from anybody, was I bought those one time in 1988. And uh, just to put, I want to give you a little perspective on this. And at that time, you could buy a brand new Honda Civic for about 3,800, all right? And 10 pack of seeds was $200. Think that one through. A pound of high sticks was uh, $3,200, almost the price of a Honda Civic with the pinstriping and the sound system and the mags and everything, right? Um, so at that time, the claim was that it had Acapulco Gold, Thai, and uh, Santa Marta Gold, I believe. Yeah, Santa Marta Gold. And, but over the years, he changed his story three or four times. Um, I definitely know the tie was in there because that's the one strain, or whatever you want to call it, origin of country country of origin that I know the most about because it's the only one I gave a crap about. Uh, nothing had ever come down the pike that was that strong. And in my opinion, nothing else has before that, maybe one or two, you know, maybe, and they would only come in like a pound or two pounds, but the tie sticks were coming in these big uh, bundles of uh, 22, excuse me, 10 kilo, 22 pounds. And it was 20 pounds of sticks and two pounds of uh, untied tie, loose buds and lots of seeds. See, the seed thing didn't get going until like late 78, 79. 
and that's a whole other discussion, but probably not not a good one um, because you're gonna a different. There's a whole bunch of changes because the plant goes from soliciting pollen to creating seeds. So of course it's a different set of uh, terpenes and terpenoids. You got fungicides, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I'm just saying, you know, the plant is goes into a different mode. Um, so I believe sincerely that to answer the poster's question, uh, 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 the guest, the question is, I can vouch that it had uh, Colombian and Thai for sure. Whatever else, uh, that was a Northern Cal thing. There's even rumors uh, who the Hayes brothers actually were, but that's not germane to her question or his or her question. But yeah, definitely Thai and definitely probably one of the uh, Santa Marta Red, Puna Roja, or the uh, Punta Oro, as it was called. Just keep in mind that the vast majority of Colombian was absolute garbage, just garbage. Yeah, there were good, you know, like any other deal, but when people wax nostalgically about Colombian, I'm thinking, are we talking about the same stuff that I used to get for a buck fifty a pound, one hundred and fifty dollars, you know, and you know, like get a ton or two tons at a dollar fifty a pound? Come on, you know, and tie sticks were going for thirty two hundred, you know, but whatever. What? I'd love to get my hands on one of those original tie sticks today. I'm sure it has oh, everybody else. But first of all, the vigor. Now, this was Hawaii, but I have some pictures of a 22-foot-tall tie plant taken from the ground. He laid on the ground with his cell phone, and, you know, so you're looking up into the the sky and uh, there was a, a, a rope tied to a four poster bed on the second story and the rope came out the window and they tied it around the top part of the plant. It was that big and uh, you're not going to get that from, you know, Johnny's Seed Company or, you know, whatever the, I don't know who, who even does seeds anymore. Like I said, I bought them one time and I wasn't impressed. I mean, there's marginal and then there's really marginal. And that's not a criticism of Neville. I will tell you that in 1990, 1990, there was a federal case that a friend of a friend was involved in. And it came out and during discovery that DEA and the US Postal Service was intercepting packages out of Holland. Uh, and replacing the seeds with junk for your good seeds. So there was some manipulation going on with law enforcement because uh, that would be easier to fuck somebody up than trying to, you know, prosecute him. If you know what I mean, there's government agencies have all kinds of ways to dick around with you that don't necessarily involve arresting you. Yeah. So what? When would all right? Put a time period on when they would would have done that. Oh, ninety ninety one. Yeah, after uh, Black Thursday, 
or also known as Operation Green Merchant, when they took down all the gross stores. And a lot of people went to jail and companies, I mean, like Hydro Gardens, you've heard of them. Well, they survived somehow. And sunlight supply turned into the, at least on the Western United States, the largest uh, grow store distributor. So, I mean, uh, now in Portland, George Cervantes, by this time after he was gone for seven years, you know, the statute of limitations. <clears throat> when he came back, he was now Jorge Cervantes. Uh, but his real name is George Van Patten. But anyway, we got more street cred, you know, with uh, Cervantes, you know, kind of like about the loco, you know, time. So, um, yeah, the scene really started here as far as, you know, because this is where they were selling all the equipment from. I mean, over in southeast Portland, there was a couple of houses that I knew of. They were putting together uh, felony flats area of southeast Portland. They were building... Uh, uh, ballast. You remember, you had to have two. You had to have one for a metal halide light and one for a high-pressure sodium. So that was George Cervantes. He Because he had a gross store, man. Why not sell him two lights? I mean, think about it, you know. Uh, everything, there was no, no stores yet. You know, it was all mail order through high times. That, that should be secure. What, what could go wrong here? Right? So... Like I say, as long as there's a tinge of legality, a question of illegality or whatever, you know, you're going to have this silliness. My, my point is this in talking with people that, you know, do the big shows, the Canacon and all that. I said, if you guys were that good, why aren't you in front of the UN getting billions of dollars in money to fix the food production issues around the world? Why is that? Why is it nobody in the in the academic arena gives a shit what you say? See, as long as you can create this myth that this plant is so unique that you have to break every rule of botany and horticulture and agronomy in general because it's cannabis. Well, I disagree with that. I think if we use good, the same good practices that sustainable and or, and or organic farmers use, we'll be further ahead of the game than all the silliness about who's got the best soil. It's all peat moss. Does it matter? I mean, come on. If I took you to the largest no. soil uh, place west of the Mississippi River and you saw how many products are packaged in this one facility... And the thing runs 24 hours, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Like when you go into a Home Depot, all those bags of soil that probably came out of a facility like that. There aren't that many, but they, they can do an entire truckload in eight minutes. An entire truckload of bag soil in eight minutes. Now you tell me you want to talk about quality, really? you think about it like that well think about it like this okay so, i'm not even going to guess because i really don't know but how many just you make a wild ass guess how many uh let's just take two stores uh uh lowe's and home depot how many do you think there are total 
just in the United States. Forget Canada and Mexico. I would take at least eight hundred. At least eight hundred. Well, it's actually I know this. It's over two thousand total. Wow, wow that's low. Okay. Low. No, two thousand stores. Okay, yeah. but that part really doesn't matter. So think about how many truckloads, and a truckload is, is basically 22 pallets. How many truckloads of soil just to stock one store? Probably two or three. Now, how many would you have to have at your distribution centers? And now let's figure out how many loads are on the road going from the processor to the distribution center that are on their way to the stores. So you see the volume of potting soil that's mixed. And these people want to talk to me about quality? Delusional. There's more money that goes into the design and artwork on the bag than goes into the actual uh, soil mix. Just out of necessity. Look, if they could, Home Depot would give you the soil. Give it to you, just help you load it in your car. Because they're going to make their money off selling you the stuff to fix it. The pesticide, the fungicide. Of course, you don't want to use anything else because you bought miracle Grosso, right? So you need to buy that because it's, it's designed to work together. That's the story they're going to give you. Well, same thing at a gross store. Well, if you use Botanicare, no, you got to use the whole product line. You don't want to be mixing it with whatever, you know, like it matters. It doesn't. Just read the label. <laughs> It's all the same. Yeah. Um, it is very much the same, too. And then as far as the whole nutrient lineups go, man, I, uh, I some of them are so costly and so hard it up. I have a hard time believing that, you know, Oh, I don't they, they have the special recipe. Oh, yeah. The more it's parted up, the more I feel they're just pulling out of my pocket. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. So, well, you know, it's... I'm curious about the seed thing. If you would like to talk a little bit about seeds. I mean, so sure. that's a whole other discussion there. Uh, I was, I brought the fact up to Mr. Soul the other night when I talked to him about seeds. And I kind of proposed the question is, uh, you know, we always kind of wonder what today's cannabis has that the stuff that we grew up, you know, what the difference was there. And, you know, the only thing I can think of as far as, you know, the smoking experience, well, you know, the high and everything is that the plants that we smoked had back then had seeds in it. Yes. <laughs> so, and as you were saying, the plant goes through a whole different process. So, is that the missing link that uh, I think you know, so. that the hide that the seeded pot produces? If you look at when people talk about the old days, okay, and they they have there's the same list. It always involves uh, you know the ones that songs are written by, like uh, Panama Red, which actually was okay. Uh, Colombian, uh, Thai sticks, um, Oaxacan, every one of those are all sativa. Not a single Afghani. 
Afghanis were brought in to the discussion around 81, 82 for canopy control. If you're going to grow under lights, not outdoors, you need needed, or it would be better that if you had some kind of control over how tall they were going to go. Whereas if you're growing outdoors in sativas, if some were 18 and some were 22, who cared? You know, you had bigger issues. The fact that you had them 18 and 22 foot tall, like for example. So the other thing too, that I would throw into this, you know, phenotypes are always discussed because that's intellectually the least difficult to discuss, but let's talk genotype. What kind of conditions are you growing in? What kind of soil are you using? How much air, I mean, see those in my mind are more critical to the final result than somebody's seed. I've given my cutaway to a lot of people, a lot of people, you know, cause I don't care. I don't give a shit. I don't own it. It came to me. So, you know, I don't really give a shit about who has it, but some of the products that's been brought back to me, Oh yeah. I used the, and they look with stars in their eyes. Yeah. I used the blah, blah, blah soil mix and light of nutrients. And I can't even tell what I'm smoking. Some people have gone and did uh, with hydroponics with advanced nutrients. It was appalling. I mean, they didn't even know enough to be embarrassed. But in their mind, they had something really good because when you spent $1,800 on a, a line of newts for a cycle or two, of course you're going to convince yourself that it's good. That's just human nature, right? I mean, if you know, you go and lose all your money at the racetrack. It's not you that fucked up. It's the goddamn jockey. You know, he wasn't running that horse right. You know, you get the idea. And especially cannabis growers, they're never going to admit, yeah, I fucked up, you know. See, the thing is that I used, uh, at that time, and you were an asshole if you didn't use it. Fox Farm Ocean Forest. My God, what a piece of crap. And then with the newt line, you know, uh, Tiger Bloom, and cha-ching and i mean this wasn't what i had in mind i want that old flavor i want that that really good you know when you smoke a chellum that you get done you know you're fucked up <laughs> you know it's just you're on the road to uh, on the road to find out kind of thing you know there's a uh something about stretching the intellectual capacity maybe or letting allowing you to see and feel things that maybe you haven't had the opportunity before in your life i don't think i'm going to get that from the guy selling a pre-roll for two dollars down at the dispensary you know what i mean <laughs> or my other favorite is is hash what the hash that I knew came out of Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, Lebanese, Lebanon, and the stuff that I've tasted that was done in somebody's garage here in Portland. You can call it whatever you want. That isn't hash. I'm sorry, but you know, you can yammer all day long about this extract and that extract and how you did. I don't care. That isn't hash. Hashish is, you know, 
it was defined for thousands of years, at least three millennia. Okay, but you invented it here what, in the last five years because you got a new Bunsen burner. Good deal. Yeah. So, sorry if I sound as so. So am I to understand that, uh, so how do you, are you taking in nothing but cuts or are you growing the yeah. same strain for? Yes. Yeah. Mother, uh, mother clone, mother clone, mother clone for 36 years. Wow. Same strain. In January, huh? Or the same few strains. Same few strains or the same strain and you just got the staple? Is so that, that one, yeah, but I have another gotta... one. Um, yeah, see, I got the seeds in 86 on that. And he had gotten them from, which I found out and verified later with his son. He had gotten them from DJ Short on his way to creating the, uh, I'm really out of my league here, but it was the blueberry. There were branches that didn't make it for whatever reason. And this was one of the branches was uh, that, because when I was given the seeds, in 86, yeah, 86, I was told this is Velvet Rush from some of the people up north, meaning Oregon, the Sacred Seeds crowd, which is an interesting study for anybody who wants to know about cannabis history. They go back to the late 30s, Sacred Seeds in the Northwest. And anyway, later I found out that not that it was out of the same load, but it was out of the same district that that tie that uh, DJ Short used to create the blueberry was in the district they call the Highland area of, of, of Thailand. And that's the area that my strain that I created, the, the Thai seeds came out of the same district. That's all. Not that they're related or one's better than the other, but they were out of the same uh, area. But yeah, when you'd get like say ten pound bale of uh, tie sticks, you wouldn't believe the amount of goddamn seeds in because the, it was wrapped. These things are wrapped in, uh, see, rice paper, kind of a pink color, and then they were tied with uh, silk uh, uh, twine, and so you pop them open, you had this big bale, but all the shake at the bottom was just loaded with seeds. I mean, you didn't think anything about it. And then seeds all of a sudden became, you know, like the worst thing you could possibly have. But anyway, yeah, that came later, like 88, 89. The whole thing was uh, sense of me, you know, it's all green, poorly done by today's standard, I would say. Uh, The concept of uh, curing, wasn't quite as uh, developed as maybe it is today, or hopefully anyway. I like I like curing mine for several months before I smoke it. Uh, you know, burp them every week, that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, that was uh, it. Was weird because you could go buy the growing equipment at these stores here in Portland. But there were stories about whether they were true or not. You know, some people are paranoid about everything. But they were following people home from a grocery store. I don't know. Maybe they did. Maybe I, I didn't ever 
personally, I didn't know of anything like that going on. But I used to go in George Cervantes' place on a regular basis. Uh, he was out just uh, southeast Portland. And he was rocking and rolling, man, with these orders pouring in from his advertising in High Times Magazine. And the other one, uh, Sensimia Tips, out of uh, Corvallis, Tom Alexander. So, wild times, man, wild times. Is it, uh, have you always just grown cannabis? I mean, what have, what are some of the other plants you've grown? I mean, you you talked to uh, agriculture, horticulture background there. Is it? Uh... Oh, uh, the Japanese lace maples. Uh, let's see. Uh, that's not a plant, but uh, I just really like gardening. I like growing, you know, not wasting my time on rutabagas and turnips that I'm not going to eat them. So load up the yard with, I don't have a yard anymore. It's all raised beds in the front. Uh, load them up with the tomato plants and have the neighbors just wonder, what do you give those plants? Nothing. I just uh, put some layer of compost on every spring and oh, some kelp meal maybe, you know, or neem meal, whatever. I like the neem because it controls nematodes and it also uh, holds the nitrogen in the soil, nitrification as it's called. But yeah, I mean, seven seven and a half foot tall tomato plants. And it looks like a Christmas tree lot, you know, I mean, just massive. The branches are so heavy with fruit set that, you know, you gotta stake them up. So that's the kind of stuff I like to do and teach other people um, how to grow better food or nutrient dense food. And uh, I've kind of lost my patience uh, with, uh, well, on the commercial and the cannabis. I don't want to talk What's to What's your other people. favorite flower to grow? Oh, oh hostas. And see, hostas, that's really big in the Northwest because we have cooler weather patterns here. Um, Portland, is, one of its nicknames is the Rose City. So roses are a big deal. We have a rose garden with over 800 rose plants. Can you imagine that? It's one of the top rose gardens in the world. It's a great place to go test out your new camera or cell phone, whatever. Because the color, uh, you can imagine, about five, ten miles from me is uh, one of the largest uh, tulip. I think they have 200 acres in production of tulip uh, bulbs. And you can buy the bulbs. Now is about the time of the year you plant them. So that uh, in spring they, kind of like uh, dahlias, uh, other two you plant, you plant a, a rhizome, not a, a seed per se. So let's see. Uh, oh, uh, mushrooms. That's not a plant, but that one really intrigues me because it's such, it's so diametrically opposite of plants. Plants take in air, use the CO2 and expel oxygen, right? And animals like us, we take in air and we expel CO2 and use the oxygen. Well, fungi are the same as animals. They need oxygen uh, to thrive, the mycelium. So um, it's a different mindset on how you, like I use core in one of, uh, as a substrate, 
and I told the guys at the farm store there because I shop at the, this big organic farm store. I told them they were under threat of serious harm if they told anybody I was in there buying vermiculite and core. But uh, but anyway, that uh, the, at least I get the good core. I get the stuff out of Sri Lanka, the organic stuff. Um, uh, Let's see, the company that packs it is uh, Sun Girl Horticulture, and it's called Just Core. So it's loose, not bricks. And uh, because of where it comes from, it's the one preferred by high-end, like orchid people and others, you know, that they need a more pure form, that's all. And, um, and then uh, vermiculite approved for organic food production. I don't know why there's something about vermiculite. I, I just, when they told me, well, you want the organic stuff? I said, yeah. So anyway, you mix those two uh, by volume equally. And that's a basic substrate for uh, psilocybin type mushrooms. Other mushrooms like say uh, your tree mushrooms like uh, lion's mane, uh, maitake, uh, also known as hen of the woods. Those you use uh, a mix that includes uh, wood pellets, like you use for barbecue, uh, the hardwoods, and uh, soybean husk. Cap. It, anyway, it's so it's about uh, cellulose because that's what fungi eat is cellulose. They're the only organism on this planet. Bacteria can't. Uh, only only uh, fungi. So it's a really interesting area because it's so different from agronomy where, you know, you're dealing with soil and enzymes and what have you. And uh, uh, mushrooms are just a completely different uh, processor. You know, one thing you don't need are expensive lights. You know, you don't have to have the super duper X10 5000, you know, with uh, some crazy numbers or whatever. Uh, shop lights do real fine or LEDs and, you know, replacement bulbs for a shop light that are LEDs. Those are almost perfect uh, for that. Well, how much are those? 25 bucks? I mean, come on. You, know, you start getting into cannabis lights. And, I've actually found them as cheap as ten dollars. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I actually uh, use them right there. They actually work pretty good. Right. And the thing is, when you learn to grow uh, mushrooms, and it's not rocket science, you can create food. You can use them in your vegetable garden to increase, like I mentioned, the book uh, mushroom cultivation how to use mushrooms to not only are they going to produce food for you. These are all edible uh, forms of uh, high end culinary mushrooms. They're going to improve the uh, tilt of the soil in your raised beds or, or your garden plot. So it's a win-win deal all the way around. And uh, year after year, your garden is going to become more productive more and more every year will improve. By by a lot. I mean, you'll see it. 
And so the food's do you believe in uh, you got to believe in like planet communication. You think oh, these plants use the, the mycelium network to communicate a little bit? Well, I don't know about that per se. They well, they do communicate with each other. Plants can exchange, say, plant A has uh, an excess amount of, I don't know, uh, let's just grab one of uh, potassium, we'll say. And plant B adjacent to it needs it through exudes and in, in communication, which is how plants talk. Yeah, they'll pass off cations to uh, adjacent plants and warn each other about when an invasion, if one plant gets hit with uh, herbivore insects. But what gets confused with, with chemical farming is that you dull the senses and these actions by the plants because we're trying to achieve something real or usually unrealistic. And so you degrade the quality of life, if you will, on that for that plant to, to not just survive, but thrive. It's not good enough, in my opinion, just to have survival. We need to have plants, whatever we're growing it for. Say you're growing Tulsi basil, the holy basil, for as a medicine for your children. Or, or what have you. Um, you have to let plants, it'd be like get, taking a dog you spent several thousand dollars on because it came from a great line of hunting breeds and you knew some guy that had a three-legged dog. And you say, well, I'm going to have this dog's leg removed because I know of a three-legged dog that really runs well. Well, why don't you just leave the dog intact and you know give it a good diet and try that first before... I mean, some of the practices in cannabis just defy logic, uh, just defy it. Uh, the major one being uh, topping a plant. Why you would do that is beyond my grasp. See, the thing is, when you top a plant, you create an oxen that gives you lateral growth. That part I get, all right? But here's the thing. When you do that, your plant goes in to stall for several days until it, you know, shakes it off or whatever phrase you want to use. However, if you use what is, I had to have explained to me, but LST, low stress training, that same plant hormone, oxen, is created, but you don't miss a beat. The plant doesn't go into stall. It immediately gives you your canopy control, which is what you're after, right? You want lateral growth rather than vertical growth. Like, but we don't have to chop the plant. It, I mean, it's insane. Try it sometime. Try, take a plant using sticks and, and zip ties and just bend the, 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 the trajectory of that branch. Just one plant. You'll see immediately what I'm talking about that plant will be stronger than the ones you topped. Well, I'm, well, I definitely uh, manipulate my plants. I, I don't top a lot anymore. In fact, I've kind of lately kind of went a little bit opposite on a different technique than most people. I'm done with like a, a very aggressive stretch in veg <laughs> to where I'm at. I, I let it grow up to 
She's wet. She's wet. So this one's close. So basically, this one's ready to where I'm going to go through and I'm going to strip all these off. I'm going to do it right now. So I'm going to go through here and I'm going to pop these all off. I know she's going to stall. I know for a fact she's going to stall. Almost as bad as the topping that you're talking about. But what I found out is that stall will give these few that I've left, in my opinion, this is all in pro science here, but this right here was going to collect me enough energy and to protect, you know, keep things going. But what I've noticed by what I just did here in a few days, all these side, all these branches here, the overall height will stay the same. Mm-hmm. But now all these will shoot out. Sure. And then now from then on, we'll have a nice bush from, you know, so I'm only creating that stall once. Right. And then I'm, you know, growing a bush after that point. And no more topping after that either. After that point, it's just a manipulation of branches. Right. Is what I'm doing. So, you uh, grow a straight core? Yeah, well, yeah, it's really chunky too. It's, uh, you know, like, there you go. It's almost wood chips. Gotcha. And then, you know, so I've started out with that and then I reuse my older one. So I'm starting off with a fresh, chunky, and then I'm pulling in like a 50-50 mix because it's broken down, you know, quite a bit through the run. So it's a little finer. So I actually run it in a layer. I'll put that chunky stuff on the bottom and then a layer of the older stuff, which is much finer than chunky. And About three layers of that is how I I run. So do you have to use an aeration amendment like perlite? No, 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 okay. no. That stuff's so chunky. It, okay. you know, that's my aeration. I got you. That's my aeration. Pretty good now. I'm pretty happy with it, but I've got to, you know, in all fairness, in all fairness, you know, uh, they've been trying to get me to go organics now for a while. And I have grown in soil back in the day, but, you know, honestly, you know, the old outlaw days when I wasn't supposed to be growing, growing up in an attic space. Right, uh, right. Things get things got heavy. I couldn't soil wasn't my answer for growing up in an attic space, so I had to choose a, a lighter medium. So, but now I'm back on ground level, yeah. and you know, and I am a caregiver. And one of the other things that was drawing me back was the idea of things are a little bit slower in the organic side. Sure, and I. I, that's what I. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. And then Smiley these Gardens here put me together a couple of these earth boxes with your mix in it. So right here behind me, we got a side by side. We got these in the way, but them four in the back there, all the same strain. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got two over here, and you basically your mix, and the other ones are in my cocoa. Mm-hmm. And these girls over here. And they're they're going just as fast as my cocoa girls, and but the only difference is, man, the stems on on these boxes are way thicker. The stru- branch structures are way thicker. 
But, you know, as far as the time and the rotation loss, I, you know, I don't see it. You know, I'm, you know, that, and that was my hesitation is trying to keep things going in rotation. Right. And to keep my perpetual going for my, uh, my caregivers, for my patients. Right. But, uh, I'm impressed. I'm very impressed. You know, if I could keep these results up with, you know, stay in a dirt. I can give you a couple of suggestions that are inexpensive. Sure. Um, You can find this online, uh, the Coot Fix-It Mix. So this makes five gallons of tea. And you could dilute it, but anyway, I'll give you the recipe for five gallons. You want one cup of alfalfa meal. That's easy to source. And a quarter cup of kelp meal. And you want to bubble it for overnight. You don't need a long time. Now, the beauty of this is that after you get done, and then you apply it full strength as a soil soak. So that material that you started with, only about 50% at most gets extracted into the water. So that's still a really viable material. So we can put that around the plant, around the stock, and use it as a top dressing on our plant. So nothing gets wasted. And I, 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 I've used, I've helped people for years online. And I would have them do this first. And not one, not one person ever came back and said, that was a waste of time. All I heard was my red. My God, I can't believe my plants. They just exploded. The new growth. They look healthy. They're reaching, you know, the leaves are at a 45 degree angle angle. So if you do that like every 10 days, nothing no major, just you know, uh, and then put some barley. Go to a home grocery store and tell them you want two row barley. And have them uh, shatter it. That's a term they use. You don't turn it into a flower. It's like you hit it with a hammer. So the pieces kind of get flattened and shattered. And you top dress your plants and water it in. Barley will make your plants explode with new growth. It's almost magical. And I stumbled on that one accidentally. So uh, malted barley, you can buy any malted grain at a home brew store. If they have a sale on oats, buy oats. If they got a good deal on rye, use rye. That part doesn't matter which grain you use. And uh, you'll see growth like you've never seen in your life. That's a promise. So could I fluff both? I mean, could I add both inputs into my cocoa? I mean, if I were interested yes thing in the cocoa of course. yes could i you know add a and b and fluff it into my mix and sure sure if anything well it'd just make it a bit airier wouldn't it it sounds like right i use you wouldn't have it because you got to be near volcanoes but pumice is the foam that rides on top the lava and so when it cools it you've seen lava rock right like you have in gas uh, grills it's got holes in it. That's what I use in my soil mix. I live one of the biggest uh, volcano ranges in the world, the Cascade Mountains. They're all volcanoes. Mount Hood, Mount, you know, Sisters, the Sisters Mountain. Uh, what's the one that back in the 80s, they had a, uh, 
Oh, Mount St. Helens. Those are all, I can see those from my house. Well, not, not sisters, but you get the idea. So pumice is cheap, really cheap. Uh, you know, $50 a yard, give me a break. Uh, and it isn't going to go anywhere and it can deteriorate. It's lava rock. It's inert. In fact, it's referred to as volcanic glass. So no matter what program a person is using, chemical, organics, they can use pumice because it's completely inert. Doesn't influence or affect pH or uh, sequestering, nutrient sequestering or anything like that at all. So, um, but yeah, I would experiment with just take one and, you know, maybe a plant that's not doing too well and give it, you know, part of that the Coots fix it mix. You got nothing to lose. And you might find a, something that maybe worked good for you for just say, do this for the first month and really get the veg strong and that lush growth, if that's what you want, you know. And you can uh, merge the two, do a hybrid. Not everyone's an organic terrorist. I get that, you know. Um, I I don't take any prisoners, so but not everyone's going to do that. So I've also got our back the other way, and this one's for you, American one. This one's for you. So back the other way. If I like wanted to go towards the soil side of things, you know, back over towards your your mix there. But, you know, one of the things that when I've always stayed in cocoa, one of the things I, in my mind, why I'm in cocoa, and especially in the chunky cocoa, Mm -hmm. is because I'm trying to duplicate almost like a hydroponics. I'm pushing more oxygen constantly into the root zone, into the root zone. So if I, so if I want to incorporate that into your mix, would that be totally possible by adding, you know, probably pumice or something like that a more just go to your mix but you know water more would be totally possible to mimic my cocoa in your you know in your mix would it be something i could do just by a lot aerating it more with like pumice right i i can uh i'll send you some information some sources in your area but i mean there's a look the, the way that it's practiced in the cannabis scene is something that was done 40 years ago. And some of the practices can't be quantified today. And it certainly has little or nothing to do with mainstream. You know, this is a state that we do almost, you know, over one and a half billion dollars a year in nursery stock. And we're not even a big player. Look at California and Florida. Can you imagine the amount of plants that are grown in Florida and then distributed at your local nurseries and your home depots and that kind of thing? So I guess what I would say is learn the practices of commercial nurseries because they have a track record, especially on core. Core has some features that I don't like. One is, okay, a material is rated at how well it can hold on to nutrients in the soil, called cation exchange capacity, CEC. Okay, 
not peat moss because peat moss is like in the old days shake and sphagnum is the tops. So sphagnum has a CEC of 70 on a scale from zero to hundred. Now, when we look at uh, core, and now I'm talking the good stuff, the really good stuff that's fluffed and no salt issues, you know, you know what I'm talking about. That has a, a cation exchange of 50. So we can, you, that's a big difference. So you can make up for that but you'd probably want to use something like, and this could be a good project for you to learn because it isn't difficult, is how to make good worm castings. Do you use smart pots, that, that type of pot? You know, I have used them at one point. I've got the plastic uh, ones that like look like a cone, you know what I mean? Right. Go in and out and they've got the airy circles. And I have the air pots or the fabric pots, but the only thing I didn't like about the fabric pots is, again, I've got a lot of that old school grower stuck in me to where, you know, I'm well, wa- gonna, well I guess it's a good thing, washing pots and everything. And when they came gonna, to wanting to, they just so got We're, we're going to use this to make a worm bin. We're going to use this, that technology. Those are made out of post-consumer plastics, milk jugs, the, the two liter drink bottles at, you know, 7-Eleven. Okay, so they last forever. And, but we're going to use it as a worm bin. Why? Because it breathes. And the biggest problem with worm bins is that they build them too dense. There's no exchange of airs. Worms breathe through their skin. So excess water is how they die. When they die, they stink. I mean, how many times have you read online? Well, I had a worm bin, but it smelled. Well, then, you know, you set up an anaerobic system because worm have no smell. A worm bin, that's the beauty of it. But so let's say 100 gallons is a half yard. So think of that as 13 and a half bags. A 200 gallon is a yard. And those are around $30, $35. You couldn't build a worm bin that big. At, for, if you went and bought the wood and everything at Home Depot for $35. And so all you want to do is you put it on a, a I see you have pallets. You want it up off the floor. Why? Because we want circulation from the bottom, the sides, and everything. And that way you can't overwater it. If you overwater it, it runs out. So you're not going to have problems. And pick a good manure. It's got to be aged because they give livestock uh, vermicides, right? Worm medicine. So you got to let those neutralize so they don't kill your composting worm. So four to six weeks, that's all you have to age it. And it's got to be turned. And the sunlight is the, it goes a long way to breaking those compounds up. Um, or do you compost? I mean, if you live in an area where you can go buy com- compost, it costs you about 40 bucks a yard. Big deal. Um, at least it's it's been, it's not going to be perfect, but it's good enough for this. It's for worm bins. And then I'll send you the recipe and what to add to it. And I promise you the first time you ever use your own worm castings, you'll never look at chemicals again. It'll never happen because the plants are going to be so big 
the buds are going to be the frost. I mean, it's just going to look exactly like it's supposed to, and you didn't have to use Photoshop, you know, to achieve it. You know, you're going to achieve it through biology and botany and not chemistry. It's that simple. It's getting cranial worm castings is a nothing, but it takes some time. Oh, uh, I'm kind of interested. Well, you had me at the repurpose. <laughs> you started to get me at the repurpose because I have, uh, you know, I I grew in the AirPods for a long, long time. I got a lot of different sizes, but a buddy of mine, uh, about two years ago now, had some of the bigger ones. They're like they're twenty gallon smart pots, easy. They're you know they're they're big boys. I mean they're equivalent to, I think he said like a. 30 or a 40 gallon pot, you know, but they're, you know, they're good sized pots. So and I've been wondering, I've, they're too big for my tents to grow in. They're, they're pretty tall and they're pretty fat, <laughs> but they would be good for what you're talking about. Yes. Using them for worm vents there. I That's mean, right. they would be perfect because yeah. you can, you know, even without the base there, lifting them up, they've got that false bottom that I could pick up. So, you know, there was always an, air spot on the bottom that it would never, you know, be saturated like you're saying. But yeah, if I could repurpose some things like that, I'd be yeah, that's a good re- good reason to reverse repurpose them too. I tell you also even if you just use them in this stage, let's just say for uh cloning, you know, cuts, rooting cutting your cuttings. You use a mixture of your own worm castings, really, really high quality, the kind of stuff that you can't buy. You have to create it yourself. Nobody's going to put kelp meal in a worm bin, but you. No one's going to put quality rock dust, but you. You know, all those things that make it from a grade six to a grade 10. You got to put some effort into it. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I've been a student of vermiculture for at least 15 years. And I have a collection of books, PDFs, <clears throat> studies around the world. And there's nothing, nothing in this planet that can make a plant grow as well as worm castings. Uh, it's enzyme driven. It's, uh, there's disease suppression, insect suppression all kinds of properties. And I um, uh, just take my word for it. I'm not trying to say anything. Just make some worm castings, use them, and you'll never look back. You'll, you know. So what are your thoughts about, like, using, uh, feeding them worms, like, Bokashi grains? Would there any be any benefit to that? Probably just, I had bad history with that whole thing before it really got going. And I took it down to some insane level, like 2.2 pH. And uh, what a mess on my plants. So I walked away from it. You know, it was probably it was a matter of uh, dosage or not dosage, but, uh, you know, how much you use. And uh, I don't know. I don't like things that annoy me. And uh, I got annoyed with... You know, I've never owned a pH meter. I've never used one. And so all of a sudden, I'm basically 
you know, doing hydroponics or something. I got to check this and check that. I'm really lazy and I create, I put all my energy into making castings, compost first, and then turn the compost into vermicompost. You, and <clears throat> because I've never grown plants like that of any kind, regardless of what it is, house plants, uh, you know, vegetable plants, fruit trees, because that's what it's all about. If, if all the worms disappeared from the earth, uh, the planet would ha last less than two weeks. Think of what worms do. They deconstruct organic material. This planet would stink. It would rot. You know, it's worms that deconstruct it quickly through enzymes, neutralize. And that's why I'm saying if you set it up right, you, you, no, people could walk into your garden and never even know that you're creating humus. Seriously. And then you'll have some, <clears throat> even if you have to maybe just start out for yourself or maybe the patients that need the highest quality medicine, maybe you have to do it like that, maybe run three or four plants of your top shelf for end of life uh, folks and, you know, that need, need the, uh, the strong, no, well, stronger is the right word, but a more complex uh, a cannabis maybe. So on the low end, uh, what would be the lowest, like, can I like put my, my worm bin and like a garage type area? I'm in northern Michigan, so how, how okay. long do they have to stay? Uh, here's how it works. They depend on bacteria to create their food. So we put our food in the refrigerator to slow down bacteria so the food won't rot. So when it gets cooler, you have less microbial activity, which means less food. And so the worms bunch together, both to uh, worm heat, or not worm heat, uh, body heat, and then they go into super drive on reproducing, reproducing cocoons. Now, because it's cold, the cocoons won't develop and hatch, they go dormant. And so even if it got cold enough to wipe out all the worms, let's say, which it wouldn't, but it's not ambient temperature, the temperature inside that mass. You can do things like wrap it in, uh, oh, what are those things like when you move ice cream in a pallet, uh, some kind of a metallic surface, a quilt for, you know, anyway, you can block the cold, help, you can do that. Uh, but let's say let's say that it you know everything got wiped out, all the worms died. Okay, you had all the cocoons, and each cocoon contains four. On average, don't laugh, four point two worms. I don't know who counts this stuff, but so when it gets warm, you're, then the bacterial activity increases, which means food, and that triggers the uh, hatching of the, and from day one they start consuming material and within six weeks, they're sexually mature. Okay. So this is one of those rhetorical things. You'll never have perfect condition, but let's say you did. 
a pound of worms today is a thousand pounds a year from today because of how fast they reproduce. Worms are hermorphoditic, but they have to be two to tangle. They line up with each other and they exchange body fluids and then each one creates cocoon. And they do that about one and a half times a week. So you can see how fast the colonies can rebuild because they live five, five and a half years, never sleep. And they're the best workers in the world. They don't complain, they don't call in sick. You know, their mothers don't die. Uh, girlfriend's dog didn't get run over, you know. They just show up for work and uh, process uh, organic matter, turn it into uh, humans. So how long does the worm live, basically? I'm curious. Well, five and a half years. Never uh, sleeps. So I, my next question would be, uh, and I guess laugh if you want to, but... Uh, do they get like slower and digest things slower as they go along? So I guess my next, my question is, so if I've got a worm bin, would it be more beneficial for me to like kind of cull the herd every so often or no. maybe like cut them half, cut, cut them in half and maybe start no. a new one and let the younger ones, you know, repopulate no. where the younger worms more eat more, work more productive, I guess. That's what I'm trying to get. Not at all. Because all they're eating again is slime. They can't digest, like, because they don't have a stomach, they don't have teeth. So, um, the best uh, thing, if, okay, now they are self regulating for sure. Because, like any other organism, there's a certain amount of food. And so, the best thing to do is set up another bin and then transfer over, you know, like two giant handfuls. Set help friends uh, that you know are involved in growing want to grow good quality cannabis, or there are your yard, you know, your plants. You, you want beautiful roses, whatever it is, you know. That the plant doesn't matter. Well, okay, obviously I don't know anything about cacti, so it probably has requirements that are far different from the run. You know, the majority of plants on on this planet. And I'm not an expert in orchids. I know enough about it that I know that you got to be pretty smart. Uh, but on the kind of plants that we grow in our gardens for food or beauty and trees, that one I got down. And the best thing we can use on our plants is worm castings. Nothing comes close. The Riffin Fat Boy would like to know... Uh... If I could ask you, if you're making mushroom substrate with worm castings, if you could utilize the excessive black pasteurized castings water in your soil. Yeah, you know, uh, I've not been successful, but that's from lack of uh, a skill set. I'm just, uh, I'm a, a student uh, in, in the mycology thing. I've not been successful using uh, vermicompost, though that book that I mentioned, Organic Mushroom Farming by Trad Cotter, uh, he, that's why I bought it because it had organic in the title. And I down, put it on my iPad before I, I was on my way to Florida to go look at Karanja trees. And uh, so it was a long flight and I read 
the majority of the book and I was just, the guy blew my mind. And, and then my, the other is, the title is Organic Mushroom Farming and Myco Remediation about using mycelium to reclaim uh, poisoned water, soils. I mean, it's pretty amazing. You know, and, and he's been in the, the press with Paul Stamets and the work that he's uh, been involved in for many, many years and what have you. So there's some really, there's some really smart people that are uh, really sounding the, the bell about how to use mycelium to make this a better place to live and, and increase our food production and provide another layer of defense for our plants. Because with the aerobic fungi, we hope, then that's, good, that's a good defense against pathogenic fungi, the molds, the, the powdery mildews, what have you. That, I hope that answers the question. Uh, I, I am guessing. <laughs> I'm guessing that answers this question. I'm guessing. I'm uh, I'm kind of you know really intrigued right now with the mycelia and all that. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I asked you if you thought they could communicate with the mycelia network from plant to plant. You know, I was. Oh, in that regard, yeah, it's so yeah. fascinating how they, how they, you know, can work on us. I actually seen a thing uh, the other day that said that uh, was trying to say that the the my, mycelia network in our guts was actually controlling what was it forty five percent of our thinking. Uh, oh, absolutely. So basically, it was almost like a second brain. Right. Uh, so there's, it was uh, kind no of fascinating, question. and I actually seen some uh, studies too on uh, how they were uh, without a brain, a single cell organisms, mycelia, were like they were putting them in a maze, and they would actually grow their way out of the maze. <laughs> if that would make sense, it was they 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 choose they chose the they were growing intelligently. So you know, I, it's. It's kind of fascinating. I think that's going to be a new frontier when we start cracking the Masilia network code there. Oh, it's, uh, yes, it's been, um, some of the research is, uh, can't be, it almost sounds science fiction. <clears throat> but think about um, the single-celled fungi that we call yeast that saved the human race from bad water because when you make beer, you sterilize the water or the water is sterilizing in the process, in that process. So it wasn't a question of getting drunk. It was a question of keeping babies alive. I mean, more, more babies have died from bad water in the history of the human race than all the wars together. So, that organism, think about it, bread, you know, I'm not, I don't want to turn this in. I'm not a, a Baptist or anything, you know, but I mean, you know, the staff of life, I mean, it, it's mentioned how many times in all kinds of uh, holy books, not just the, the judo Christian, you know, Christianity, but also in the Hindu books and Buddhist. 
you know, breads played a big role. You know, and, and it allowed the human race then to become uh, food producers by growing these grains rather than uh, food gatherers. So that, that gave them a level of control over their lives. The harder they could work as far as increasing the yield means they had more food to eat. So um, we can take a lot of those tools and use them. Like you add malted barley to your soil. And all malted means is germinated. That's all it means. And then as soon as it cracks open, it's stopped. And then it's put into a conveyor belt that goes through an oven and heated up around 118, 116. And that kills the taproot. But all those enzymes that were involved in the creation of the, the that were in, they were placed there by the host plant when the seed was created. We're going to capture those enzymes and we're going to use it to feed our plants. And so when we do, we add things like urease for urea, uh, protease for protein, uh, phosphatase for phosphorus, uh, chitinase for the chitin. And all those enzymes then play a role uh, in helping the plant defend against uh, insects and also helps to de helps accelerate the deconstruction of the organic matter in the soil and in our worm bins. So you can really accelerate the worm reproduction cycle by adding copious amounts of barley to the substrate. And for less than a dollar a pound, you know, I mean, it's kind of ridiculous when you compare it to what something like that would cost at a grocery store. See, the goose mix is good. What's that? I'm sorry, go ahead. I was no, I said, a question, but go ahead. I didn't mean to cut No, I do. I just said the goose mix is about, you know, saving money. There's nothing, you know. You create you you create your own casting. So right there is there's the key. And then what? You get a bag of kelp that lasts you a couple of years. You know, and I don't know. Anyway, go ahead. America, the American one says, I know that worms will increase bacteria populations. Do worm beds encourage fungi growth as well? We can do that by adding fungal foods like the barley. The barley has over three, I'm sorry, 150 varieties of fungi that uh, gets transferred when we put it in our soils or the worm bin. Uh, kelp is another good fungal food. So yes, he's right, or she's right. Uh, the, the person who wrote that is correct. It is driven by bacteria, but we can add foods that attract fungal colonies and we can raise that level up, yes. Uh, Arthro Sensimilia wanted me to ask about cannabis sprouts. Uh, you know, okay. There's a company in Portland called Bob's Red Mill. 
and they sell legumes and grains, all kinds of around the world, right? And when you go in there, well, before the pandemic, they had everything in packages, but also in uh, bulk. You, you know, you could weigh out what you wanted. So I went through every grain you can imagine and some that you never heard of, maybe like TEF, T-E-F-F, einkorn wheat, which is one of the heirloom. Anyway, and then legumes, pinto beans, black beans. I I did every, every one I could. And you know what I found out? It didn't matter. Not one iota. You got the same benefit because I was, I was germinating my own. I was making my own malt. I didn't know you could just go buy it already done. That was a big, wow, really? You can imagine, you know, because before it'd take two or three days of planting, you got to soak the bean, you know, just they use sprouted seeds, you know, in a jar, maybe like alfalfa sprouts or something like that. Well, it's the same thing, you know, but yeah, I mean, I guess if you got them really cheap, but man, I wouldn't spend any money because they were cannabis seeds. I mean, does that make sense? You could use just as easily use uh, navy beans or, you know. Something more cheap. And, uh, yeah. Available. Yeah. It's good bragging rights, though. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. Well, I'm definitely, you know, proposed a question myself, you know, like for a seed sprout tea, to, you know, try buying hemp seeds, soaking some hemp seeds, and then using that juice to, you know, soak some older seeds. Sure. Basically. What I can say is it can't possibly hurt. Now, are there magical powers? I don't know. I wasn't able to discern any difference, you know, between rye or you know, oats, red wheat, white wheat, you know, I just, I just, you know, after a while, I would just go and find out what was on sale, you know, and just grab that. But that was a game changer for a lot of people. They started adding it to their soils, the malted, you know, stuff from the brew store. And I mean, you go in the next morning and all the leaves are at a 45 degree angle. We call it praying hands. It looked like they were praying to the light God, you know, and, uh, and then the acceleration and growth. I mean, just, yeah. Try it on your bins, on your containers that have uh, the coots mix. So, what are some of the benefits of uh, adding uh, neem to the soil? Well, um, the big one is that it halts nitrification, which nitrogen makes up, what, 70% of the air we breathe. So, in the soil, it can convert from one form to another and then vaporize. So, the idea is to hold those ions in the soil, making them available to the plant when they're needed. Plants control the uptake of of elements. Um, 
and and well, that's another discussion. But uh, hydrogen is a form of exchange. Think of it as currency. That's what pH means is, is probable hydrogen. And um, so neem can can helps to con, to hold those ions nitrogen in the in the soil but more importantly it enhances the growth of the aerobic fungal colonies and suppresses the pathogenic uh, fungal colonies and it does the same with insects but it's not a poison um, for example well okay the three oils that make up neem consist of omega-3 Omega six and omega nine, nothing poisonous there, right? Then uh, the major compounds: uh, azadiractin, nimbin, serinin, and a couple more. Those are all flavonoids. I know of no poisonous flavonoids in the plant world. See what I mean? But they do things like prohibit the larva from developing inside the egg. It inhibits the adults from keeping the food down. And so they vomit it out. And so they die through uh, starvation. It's also uh, has uh, properties about uh, birth control. As a matter of fact, the majority of, of human birth controls in India and China are made from as a directin. Uh, tree, the neem tree. It's also used in livestock for uh, controlling reproduction. So we can use this on our plants and the, and, and the uh, molecules are very, they're complex. In fact, well, you can look them up yourself, but if you look up the azadiractin molecule, it's, you know, 40 carbon and, you know, 60 oxygen and you know, hydrogen. Um, so they deconstruct in a matter of a day or two, uh, at least when you use it on the surface. And remember, we're only using, in the case of a foliar spray, we're only using half an ounce to a gallon. So that's a tablespoon. And in a uh, gallon, you have 256 tablespoons. So you can see how little is used. And that makes an extremely effective pesticide and fungicide because if we can break the adult egg larva cycle, you can't just spray once. You need to find out for that particular insect, we were talking aphids or white flies or mites, whatever, what the reproductive cycle is. In the case of red mites, you'd want to spray every 72 hours and you'd want to spray four times. M many uh, writers will say three. I suggest four just to be on the safe side. And that will break the cycle. But then you need to implement an IPM. But in the soil, I mean, by being able to control nematodes, being able to control pathogenic fungi, uh, insect, and, and halting the birth and, and uh, development until they're sexually mature and then they start reproducing 
you know, more and more eggs or whatever. That's the big benefit in my, in my mind. And uh, the other thing is, if you, we look at the history of the neem tree, it goes back almost 6,500 years. And it's been, in, you know, in India, there's probably, what, 50 languages. And I believe it's Tamil, T-A-M-I-L language, that their word for the neem tree literally translates into English as uh, village pharmacy. Uh, because the roots are used, the bark, the leaves, and then, of course, the uh, thing, it looks like an olive tree. So, and it, the berry looks like an olive, except in olives, we cure them and eat the husk, right? We throw away the seeds. Well, with the neem, we, the human race takes the husk off and uses that as uh, poor animals. As livestock feed, it's really bitter. And then the, the seed is pressed and you press the oil out and you're left with meal, but most the world calls it cake. So neem cake. And it's been a fertilizer for millennia. Okay. And if you went into an India supermarket and you went back to the, what they call Haba health and beauty age, you'd find neem in almost every shampoo, toothpaste. It's really uh, powerful for maintaining oral health and um, soaps. Uh, I've even found every Indian store I've ever been in has jars uh, about four ounces or five ounces of neem oil. You can use it as a fungicide, you know, for like treating athlete's foot or or whatever. So the idea that it's poisonous, unfortunately, is by people who use a lot of hyperbole, you know, and refuse to look at the science. And that's, that's too bad because it really uh, can improve your garden soil and improve your IPM program. I used to have this, you know, I used to use this a lot and, and use it in discussing things. And I tell people, Look, man, prevention's a lot easier than eradication. You know, I was neem on my fungal network. You know, is it? Uh, it actually just, just, you know, destroys the fungal right in the soil. I mean, even when you, <clears throat> I've used it to, you know, as a, a soil drench. Doesn't it necessarily wipe out your mycology too in your soil when you use it as a drench? So. <laughs> if you use oh. it as a meal, it's it's not uh, it has no negative sides on on that side. Well, it does it does uh, suppress pathogenic fungi for sure, but it also enhances the fungi we want to see. Good. Um, okay. You know, it's not like okay. Broad spectrum means that if you use a broad spectrum pesticide. Well, for sake of discussion, that name implies or that description implies that it kills all insects without regard. And like when, okay, here's a good, perfect example. When you maybe you get sick and have a digestive infection, they'll give you back uh, uh, penicillin or some kind of antibiotic, right? And so it wipes everything out. And so after you get well, then you'll reintroduce by eating some foods that have live cultures. Make sense? 
Okay, neem is not a broad spectrum fungicide. It's very selective in, in what gets killed and what doesn't. And that's the, that's the, the, the incredible. Okay, here's a good example. It's a common in uh, India and China that they include neem and karanja, which is a legume. It's, it's more closely related to uh, alfalfa than it is neem tree. But they use it in the substrate for growing uh, mushrooms because it kills the contaminants. The bad guys, you know, for I'm going to give human traits to these uh, microbes, but it kills the bad guys and, and uh, aids the good guys in their fight and to grow. That's amazing. I know it's, it sounds like how could that work, but there's a lot of things in this universe that aren't, you know, it's not machine guns blazing. You know, there's a, a balance. Um, I mean, did you know, for example, like in a quarter cup of uh, worm castings, uh, vermicompost, there's over 300 microbes, excuse me, uh, organisms, spider mites, not the kind that we don't want to see, but the good mites. You know, there's all kinds of things going on in that soil. Uh, the amount of, uh, and, and bacteria, just think about what it took to create that material. And we'll pass that on to our, our plants and when we use it in a soil mix. You are, you're already seeing in your own garden, you know, the difference between, you know, using chemicals and using biology. I am, and I'm, I am impressed. You know, uh, I try, everybody expected me to be uh, negative about it, but I, you know, I'm being very honest with the results that I'm seeing on the side by side. And I'm, I am kind of impressed with the organics. I didn't think I would be as impressed, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with the side by side thus far. Uh, Runboy7426 would like to know if, uh, Neem cake in the soil will kill or prevent fungus gnats. Absolutely. You know, this is the honest truth. Okay, so when I went on, you know, the first pre-social media days, one of those forums, the icy mags in the grass cities and, you know, roll it up and all the other silliness. Um, I used to have to, like, look up these terms because I didn't know what they were talking about like fungus gnats. And all I knew is that when I wouldn't go in my garden, I didn't have shit flying, hopping, you know, uh, in my face. And there must've been a reason. So I never got, I never read so many problems. I mean, how could you have that many problems in you know, growing a plant? So, yeah, I, I take the path of least resistance. So, and I'm really good at studying things in its a historical context and to see how it was used. And, uh, you know, you got millennia looking at, at, at the history of neem in the Indian culture. And it, it hits every level of the culture, the rich, the poor, it's used in agriculture and in medicines. Um, 
I have the book written by the man that spent 35 years studying Neem in uh, India and Asia. Excuse me, Asia and Africa. 35 years. Then wrote an 800-page book. And he was a, a PhD when he started. He, he had graduated from Cologne University. He wasn't, you know, this wasn't a hobby. He was already a PhD entomologist. And they went to Africa because this is 1958. And uh, there was a, a locust infection that was wiping out the crops. And it was starvation like you wouldn't believe. And what he noticed when he got there is these trees that were unaffected by the locusts. Hell, they'll eat green paint, you know. And these uh, locusts left a neem tree alone. So that began, you know, a 35-year uh career studying the neem tree and its effects and benefits. And if you're in Michigan, the the biggest uh, distributor in the United States is some of the best is right in Minnesota in uh, uh, the Twin Cities, neemresource.com. And she's got, Usha's her name, which is like Jane in English. Uh, Usha is really, really neat lady. Her family's been involved in the neem industry for several, you know, decades. And uh, she's got the oil, the Karanja oil, the Karanja, and, and neem and Karanja oil and meals. So can't recommend it enough. She just picked off a question. Huh. As you were saying, as I was reading the question, you were already in a- answering it. <laughs> Uh, in that being that uh, Runboy7426 wanted to know, are there any North American alternatives to mean or name for those who are trying to be economically conscious, but you just named a good North American source? <laughs> or, right. 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 <clears throat> oh, here's what's really cool about Neem, too. Now, this is kind of a, well, you, everyone has to make their own decisions, but there are no neem orchards in India. It doesn't work that way. The trees can grow up to 160 feet. And so they're, they're like in the center of the villages. And by tradition and by religion, the poor are the only ones that can harvest the seeds. And they collect them and then they turn them into what's called an aggregator. And the aggregator buys the seeds from the poor and pays them a fair price. And this is a, an income for the poor, the, the unclean, if you will. And then the aggregator sec- separates it by quality because some seeds are going to, just like any other agricultural thing, some are going to be better than others. And because some are going to go into biomedicines, some are going to be used to make uh, engine oil. I mean, you know, there's a lot of uses of me besides... Uh, the way that we use it, there's others. And then um, then the aggregator is the one that makes the arrangements with the pressing houses in Mumbai. Uh, that's where the customers, that's where you go to buy and arrange for loads, uh, container loads out of uh, Mumbai to different parts of the world. But... Uh, I don't know. I've been using it for at least 15 years. 
So put it out, put a, put, the, put the insects out of their misery. You know, call it a day. <laughs> so the ripping fat boy asks, and I, I want to tack on a little bit to his question here. Might be a two-player, but he's asking your thoughts on, and this is why what brought my mind up on this: your thoughts on soy being a cotton meal. Uh, so when it comes to that, I want to. I my my addition on this is is GMO, like let's say soy meat. When you bring up when you talk about soy, there's so much soy that's GMO produced. Uh, does the fact that it's like yeah. a GMO Really, here is that a, a equation? In you know what I mean? Is should I be taking that into consideration when I'm buying I buy barley's, soybeans, and stuff like that? I do. I use a non-GMO soybean, and when I can get it, I get organic. But on the cottonseed meal, there are very few c- crops in this world that are as heavily hit with pesticides, fungicides and uh, herbicides than cotton. And then through the miracle of the Congress, which is coin-operated, right, the seeds from this garbage is now a food, and they press it for the oil for fry oil. And, I mean, I'm not a health nut, but there's certain things I won't eat, and that would be... And I wouldn't use, I would, there isn't a cotton seed on this planet that I would use. Uh, soy, you got to be, you got to read the label, you know, and, and, and deal with, you're going to get, you know, where you find this stuff is at a feed store. You don't have to have an organic farm store because mo- almost everything that I've used is used as a feed, an animal feed. So that can become a really inexpensive way to get our, our materials. You know, they're going to, if, because you can, especially if you have some, an area where there's like uh, people with money and they have horses or their other uh, pets like llamas. I mean, they feed those animals better than we feed our children. So uh, you find the feed store in that, in your part of the world, and you're going to save all kinds of money on your uh, soil amendments. Because they're all, like I say, they're all used at, at, as some kind of a livestock feed. Sir Howland Chet is asking, how about insect frass in the worm bed? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's the chitin. And chitin's a little hard to explain, but I'll do it real quickly. So chitin is a polysaccharide. It's a form of glucosamine. And the only thing that can deconstruct that, again, is like cellulose. It's all the same. The only thing you can deconstruct that is uh, fungi. However, when chitin is in the soil, bacteria in a feeble attempt to deconstruct it create a enzyme called chitinase. And the chitinase inhibits the insect's eggs from developing. So in that sense, it's a uh, pesticide, right? Have you ever heard of a product called chitosan? No, I haven't. 
okay, it's, it was popular at one time. Anyway, it's a pesticide, and it's made from chitin being exposed to bacteria, and they harvest the enzyme chitinase. Anyway, that's the science behind it. Now, here's the cool part. If we, when we use uh, malt, a, a malted grain, whatever, barley, whatever, it contains chitinase. So that's another benefit from putting the barley in the soil is we're getting the chitinase. And in plants, when we dis discuss the immune system, the term that's used is pathway. And the chitinase salicylic acid pathway is one of the major uh, defense systems in the plant. And a good area of, uh, for folks to study is the relationship between salicylic acid and chitin, chitinase and how the plant uses that to defend itself against attack, primarily uh, fungal uh, issues. See, it's all, it's, you know, it's all part of the same, does it make sense? There's a, just gestalt, you know, if you use that phrase maybe. Um, you know, there's a connection with these things and I think that we're well served by learning to study how those can work and how we can, I don't know if we can harness them, but, you know, use those benefits to our advantage in how we grow our plants. Well, the kinase is one of the real reasons why you add uh, the crab meal, isn't it? So if you were feeding the, the worms. Correct. Yeah, know, but what my point is. Insect frass, could you skip that? Yes. Because it would be already available. Through right. the worm bin, correct? And if you use barley, you could uh, blow off the crab meal because the shell is primarily, the majority of the shell is, like all other shells, is uh, calcium carbonate. That's what limestone is. I collected seashells over millions of years. Well, so you can buy limestone for next to nothing. What, eight bucks, ten, nine bucks for 50 pounds? If you put some barley in there, there's your chitinase. You don't have to use crab meal or if you use some insect frass. Because a lot of folks like to, uh, I think they call them reactors. I could be wrong. But that's where you have the larva. I'm really talking out of school here. Right? I kind of looked into it a few years ago, but I never really pursued it. But that's my understanding. But yeah, as long as you're getting some form of chitin or chitinase into the your soil mix, then you can blow off the expensive crab meal. I know it because it's like, what, $35, I think, or $40 for 50 pounds. That's probably a wholesale price, probably if you're getting a partial, like a five-pound box, like from down to earth or something like that. It's probably a lot more. What Good are your question. thoughts about... Uh input other types of uh inputs like uh you know rabbit shit as Indra's pointing out here it's a you know something that's being kind of pushed around in the cannabis industry right now the use of a uh, bunny shit i know a yeah. friend of mine um, has a, a bunny company there so what is it is that something that we could incorporate into the mix as well or is too much shit too much shit i would put it in the worm bin in fact, uh, I've seen some photographs of people that build their worm bin uh, 
on top of it, they have a rabbit nudge. Is that what they're called? Where you, you have the rabbit? And so when they urinate and uh, poop, it drops down into the worm bin. And let that process uh, turn that into humus. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, because they're herbivores and, you know, most rabbits aren't subjected to the feeding programs of a dairy or, or, or guide gasp steers when they go to the feedlots. <laughs> I mean, they're given all kinds of steroids to pump up their bulk, you know, because you're selling it by the pound. Um, so that's probably the cleanest manure you can get your hands on would be bunny. You know, bunny poop, like you said. Of course, you have to have a lot of rabbits, <laughs> but, uh, you know. We can use, you know, here's the other thing that we can use. Let's say you have a good source of uh, manure, uh, where, that, like, horse manure is good, uh, especially if they're, you know, in pa pastured. And they do horse stuff, you know, they move around and they eat grass, you know, instead of just in a stall. We can take that and, and use mycelium to speed up the composting process. How cool is that? Like instead of taking months, you can do it in a matter of a few weeks. And then it's ready to go into the worm bins and it's going to be activated with fungi. Like the person that just asked about increasing the fungi in the uh, substrate, well, if you use mycelium to use the to turn that manure into compost, then you would have a really high profile of fungi before the uh, and then when the uh, what do you call it, bacteria process kicks in for the actual vermiculture. Yeah, it's a win-win deal. I, I I I make you a prediction that over the next ten years that using fungi in this process of producing medicinal cannabis is going to become a big deal because there's too many benefits and you don't, you're not going to be held in subjection or ripoffs from the fertilizer sector. These are things that we can do ourselves and produce better medicine, better tomato, better everything. Chad Weston, Westport, excuse me, sorry, Chad. I live in a coastal town. Loads of shellfish for uh, fish uh, plants. Is it worth uh, collecting and grinding up and feeding to the soil? Absolutely. All shells are made out of calcium carbonate, <coughs> which <coughs> used to play chemist for a minute. <laughs> the molecule is made up of one calcium ion, <clears throat> one carbon ion, and three oxygen ions. This is an aerobic process. Getting more oxygen in the soil is a good thing. So there are differences in sh with shrimp, lobster, crab, and what do they call those in the Louisiana? Crawdads. Those have chitin. But like I just explained, we can get chitin from other sources that cost far, far, far less. Like malted barley's, what is it? Like $40 for 
50 pounds, 80 cents a pound or something. I mean, if you buy it from a beer supply house, uh, don't buy it from a fertilizer store or, you know, hydroponic shop. And uh, that's going to get the chitin in there. And that's enough chitin or insect frass. And that's something else you can grow yourself. Uh, Don't ask me how it's done, but I know my worm guy got involved with uh, selling the reactors and the, because the larvae are used by reptile owners. And uh, so growing them, there's more reasons why people grow them than just gardening. Uh, So there's a lot of information out there on growing the black soldier flies. And I think somebody has a business and they've given it a commercial name of Dragonfly, I think. But you'll find it uh, when you start looking around. And the things are like piranha. I mean, if you have a lot of biomass and you want it reduced down to its you know, lowest common denominator, black soldier flies would be a, an, another way to do it. They kind of creep me out, so I don't really. It's one reason I just, yeah, I don't want to do this one. <laughs> you know, I watched a video on YouTube of what it did to a piece of uh, some kind of like flesh of some animal. It was like piranha. I mean, it's it's really goofy. Yeah, watch it. Yeah, go to YouTube and do black soldier fly and find the videos on people showing how fast they can deconstruct a something or whatever, a dead animal or something. That's really bizarre. Uh, I'm all into biology. But it sounds pretty gross. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, yeah. It's it sounds kind of gross. Yeah, it's out there. But Yeah, it's good. So stuff. on average, how much cannabis do you consume every day? That's another question in chat. I'm kind of curious myself too much uh <laughs> too much he says is there a thing too much i don't think there is really but well let's see i usually get up about four o'clock uh i i use an ipad a lot so i to read newspaper and you know whatever news and i read some books and stuff so i start smoking and when i get up and then it's an all-day affair till I go to bed at night around ten or eleven. You know, so I'm uh, from Sounds old pretty school. average. Sounds pretty. Yeah, it's, it's, and I'm smoking uh, this strain that's really, really when it's done right. You know, uh, meaning you let it go. I know somebody invented something stupid a few years ago. That oh no, you only have to go eight weeks. It's bullshit, you know, bullshit. Uh, you know, well, whatever. I mean, you know, hey, it's your garden, do whatever the fuck you want, but, you know, would I use that expression? Missing as well. <clears throat> yeah, don't piss on my leg and tell me it's raining, you know? So uh, some varieties take 14 weeks. Uh, anyway, that part doesn't matter, but, yeah, this is, like, really... Loop de loop. 
I've never had anybody that smoked it and say, can I get a cut of this? You know, so yeah, sure. You know, have at it, you know, have fun. Imagine an F1 from 1984. That's pretty remarkable, so. It is pretty impressive. It's pretty impressive. But I, you know, I don't know. I'd like some something that uh, would set me straight like that. You know, I, I smoke all day. I smoke all day, so. Yeah. Something that punched me in the face all day wouldn't be too bad. It's funny that the, uh, the myth of the stoner, too. You know, uh, many, oh, they're, we're so lazy for smoking. I've never seen that. I've never, you know. I think if the people that, the naysayers that, they came up with the lazy stoner uh, mentality, don't know any or whatever, because for the most part, uh, cannabis users I know are some hustling people, man. Far from lazy. (laughs) I think, uh, I don't think cannabis really has a lot to do with, you know. I mean, I had uh, in the 80s in the person or it is. In the 80s, I had a glass studio uh, doing, we were making our own stained glass. Uh, I mean, the actual glass, you know, heating up the silica and putting in the, you know, gold chloride or whatever, you know, to make the different colors and then roll it out into sheet glass and then turn that into stained glass windows for spec homes and what have you. And everybody that worked around me was stoners. And they were focused on doing extremely high-end work and, you know, really beautiful work. Maybe these people are smoking bad weed and, uh, you know, they that's what's given a bad attitude, or not a bad attitude, but a bad perspective on being stoned. See, I have this theory, and then we run it by you, see what you think. <clears throat> so in the late uh, 70s, America went on this weird uh, disco shit trip and cocaine and shitty weed, right? So what I think happened is that their children were predisposed to using bad drugs or crappy drugs. And so they can't handle, you can't handle the truth. You know, uh, like, they they couldn't handle good weed, you know, it'd be like, oh, I don't want to be there. I don't want to go there. I, I just want to get buzzed. Oh, okay, well, maybe get some diet pills from your doctor or something, some Benzedrine, try that, you know. But I smoke some stuff Thank called, uh, I, I know this is, I don't want to, because I'll get in trouble, but it's a, a popular one that's, the dispensary, the dispensaries. See, that's the problem. Dispensaries are dictating what's being grown. Okay, and so yes. if somebody on TikTok says they like not uh, X, you know, then okay, we need X because you know Susie Wonton came in and asked for it. So you know, uh, or uh, some rapper. Oh yeah, I'm smoking the blah 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 thing. You know. And I just find that funny. I mean, it's like, it's worse than what some advertisers do to induce you to use their whatever. 
their products or their services or whatever. You know, you can't be cool unless you have our shoes or, you know, woven socks or, you know, whatever. So uh, that seems like what's happened in the cannabis scene is that the name has far more import than the actual quality of the weed. If it's got the right name, then, you know, in disgust. I'll tell you that, okay, this one I, I won't back off of. The first time that I saw it was on IC Mag probably six, seven, eight years ago, something like that. When I first saw Cookies, I was hysterical. I thought it was an article from Onion Magazine, you know, the big satire. I thought it was a fucking joke. Just looking at the pictures, like, who would who would clone that twice? That was my first, you know, uh, reaction to it. Who would clone that fucking plant twice? I mean, we've all grown shit seeds. I get, I get it, you know. But that doesn't mean you keep like cloning it. You know, uh, <laughs> it, you know the the dispensary attitude is it's gotten worse though. I mean, it really has. I mean, yes, the, I believe you're right there, especially when it's going to come to a recreational uh, level there. That's when things are going to get really bad, when uh, it, it's weaned down to just a few and just what they think is popular at the moment. Right. But what bums me out is it's actually hit the breeding. You know what I mean? They have to hit X and Y with fucking what's popular just because they can put those names on their pack and it will sell. I know. You know what I mean? Oh, this is crossed with that. It's got to be good. Oh, I got to have that. And it hasn't even been brand or tested. Or... And, and some of these strains are so new and being crossed that there's no way it could have possibly been bred right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, there's, it's just, it's impossible. So I don't know. I'm I'm definitely not one for the hype either. It just turns my stomach when I see the hype. It just instants me, makes me want to walk the other direction. Okay, in the northwest where I live, west of the Cascades, dahlias are a big plant. A lot of people grow dahlias, and because they're so beautiful. And um, I live near one of the largest dahlia farms and oldest on the West coast. And every year they have an open house that goes on for a month and a half on the weekends. And you get out and walk through acres and acres and acres of different types of uh, colors of dahlias plants. And they've also created some that, uh, and introduced them to the world of dahlias, this particular farm. So I'm talking to one of the grandsons from the founder and uh, he was really proud of the fact that it had taken seven years for them to perfect this uh, cultivar. I said, man, you need to get some of those cannabis guys hit. Fuck, they can turn out a new strain in a matter of days. It doesn't take seven years. And he was just, he says, yeah, well, he goes, I know some people are, you know, like readers, and he said, uh, I'm not too impressed. And I said, oh, come on, man. You know, seven years, shit. Seven years, they've jumped onto a whole new one. You know, I mean, 
Thank God Kush finally did. Is Kush dead finally? Uh, I think it's it's just been renamed, brought back, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I uh, from from what I've from what I've heard, it's back to the original. One of the originals. Somebody told me this today because I've heard a lot about the this TK strain, TK TK. And I heard the other day, oh, that's one of the original OGs. That's just all that is. I'm like, oh, so it's back. It's back. Because TK's in everything now. So TK's one of the original, like, OG cushions. Yeah, it's being smacked with everything currently. (laughs) I still believe sincerely that especially a person like yourself that has a lot of experience with different uh, plant types, cultivars, that um, if you did a plant in a five-gallon bucket or a seven, that's a cubic foot. A cubic foot for this discussion, seven and a half gallons, 120 cups. So just to give you a frame of reference. And you would want uh, 40 cups of, to do, I could send that to you. I'd say my castings. Because I put stuff in my castings that no commercial worm guy that has two cents of common sense to rub together would do. I mean, you know. You're supposed to get rid of waste material, not add kelp meal, you know, or $2 a pound mean meal. <laughs> See what I mean? But those are the things that make it, you know, from an eight to a 10, that just moves you, you know, uh, your the process down the line. But if you did that one cycle, I promise you that you would be investing all that you could get your hands on to do the biggest worm operation you could because you could grow so much quality weed that nobody could touch you. That's a promise. I've had a, I've had a standing offer to some serious people and they haven't taken me up on it. Yeah, bring me your, you know, your $700 a gallon bullshit and your pseudoscience and your goofy names, you know, rhino skin and wet Betty. And, you know, I said, let me just have my kelp and neem and, uh, you know, some uh, basalt rock dust. And you just run along and, you know, go have fun. Uh, It sounds like, uh, you know, I'd be... I'm always up to taking a challenge. It sounds like a challenge, more or less. I'd try it. You know, I'd, I'd try anything once. <laughs> yeah, I would give. I'd give that recipe. I would most definitely. Well, Aaron, the grower, he arranged through uh, another gentleman. We were on a uh, an interview thing with some of the top people in the world in the area of vermiculture, vermicompost. And you know how some guys like really follow teams and athletes, you know, they know all the stats and everything. Well, these are people that I've studied for better part of 15, 18 years and I've watched their careers and how they've grown. 
that in in the area of uh, worm castings and the science done uh, research done at Cornell University and UC Davis and Oregon State were uh, down here in Corvallis and uh, you know it, it's over the discussion's over you can't make as good a compost nobody can thermal compost that's going to come anywhere near worm castings it's not it's not uh, physically possible. And think about this. So the worm exudes uh, enzymes from their skins to trigger specific microbial responses to deconstruct this or that material. And as the worms are moving through, okay, let me put in, give you another uh, factor to consider. For this discussion, a pound of worms is, uh, about a thousand. There's a thousand worms in a pound. Adult, uh, sexually mature breeding. Okay. And uh, yeah. So if you have it set up correctly, you can achieve up to three pounds per square foot of worms. So do the arithmetic on that for a minute. Let's say you got 12 square feet. That's 36,000 pounds, 36 pounds of worms. That's 36,000 worms. I mean, yeah. So back to your question in your part of the world where you have some really nasty cold weather, I'll tell you what, go to Red Worm, redwormcomposting.com Bentley he's up in Canada and he's got articles there in his archive on how to deal with worms in the snow and it's uh, straw bales you know like straw bale houses construction well this is using straw bales because it's not ambient temperature it's the temperature in the middle of that mass of worms but redwormcomposting.com and uh, search through the archives and there's some really good data and information and photographs on how to set up in the cold weather. My worm guys was in Alaska for 10 years back in the uh, 80s. So I don't want to mislead you, but uh, Bentley, who's the guy that runs Red Worm, I've known him for like 25 years. And so his website is gold. Uh, go in a bit of a different direction here. Microgoon wants to know, do you use uh, blueberry Bassiana at all or just neem as far as uh, pest management? I uh, just neem. Uh, but, I mean, there's other materials. It's just that uh, it's kind of corny, but... Uh, I first read about Neem was in a book and it was about Mahatma Gandhi and Mahatma Gandhi used to eat Neem leaves every morning uh, to remind him as part of a spiritual practice about bitter, that life is a balance of bitter and sweet. And so there's a real religious connection uh, for those who have studied anything about Hinduism uh, in the Bhagavad Gita when Krishna came down and uh, with Arjuna at the big battle, 
his bow was made of neem. The arrows were made of neem and said to be the strongest uh, arrows in the, you know, the universe kind of thing. And then also meanwhile, it's rubbed on the wood statues in temples in India. And so they've lasted 3000 or more years uh, with no uh, termite damage or, you know, insects that would eat the wood or or degrade the, the statues and what have you. So, and I think, you know, for a while, all its benefits, it's really inexpensive. You're only using, again, you know, a cup per uh, cubic foot. And so, like I said, there's 120 cups in a cubic foot. And your one would be, that's not even what, is that 8%? No, 0.8. I don't know. I can't do it in my head right now. I'm too stoned. But, you know, it's not much. That's all I'm saying. I, I find the, uh, I mean, it's always I heard or somebody told me about Neem, you know, and it's like, I haven't heard this before. And uh, I'm kind of sorry I got reengaged in it because they, you know, I don't care. Use it. I would say to anybody, use it, don't use it. You know, I mean, the science is there. It's not difficult to track down. Um but going on a broadcast and, you know, just spouting hyperbole about it's worse than Roundup. I mean, who says that kind of stuff, you know? Just, it's retarded. Catching up here a little bit in the chat. <laughs> My friends, Bad Bunny Nutrients there, the ones I was referring to a minute ago is in chat. <laughs> It's a spreading the bunny shit around Michigan here, bad bunny nutrients. And so you, I, I like your uh, idea about uh, feeding into your worm bins. I've never actually thought about you know feeding, you know, actually shit to the worms there. It's you know food. <laughs> well, worm people are goofy. <laughs> you know, I actually read an entire thread. Uh, where these worm masters were arguing about what's the best manure. And the general consensus was that because they're complete herbivores and usually are taken care of pretty well by their owners, that rabbit manure was the best. Because what are they fed? Like pellets, uh, which are usually alfalfa or timothy grass or whatever. So that was a general consensus that you know, if you had a lot of rabbits, that would be a good use for uh, the manure and the, and the urine would be uh, good uh, materials that drop into your worm bin for sure. So let's see here. What haven't we covered so far? Um. Any tips? Uh, I mean, we've talked, we haven't talked about composting, you know, at all. Is, uh, any okay, tips for my, composting? Yeah, here's, I mean, here's the, the, you know, Reader's Digest version. So the big thing is most states have a requirement, and this is commercial. I mean, you do it what you want at home, but they, 
take it up to, uh, it depends on the state, but on average, it's around 135, 136 Fahrenheit. And that kills the pathogens. And, but it, it kills everything. So now when the, that's the thermophilic cycle, when the temperature drops below a hundred and between that and 70 Fahrenheit, we're now in the mesophilic. And that's where we start adding nutrient dense materials to rebuild the nutrient profile as well as attract microbes. And that's things like alfalfa meal uh, in small amounts. We don't want to kick in the, we're not trying to recompost. You know, he has nothing to do with it because even if you take it up to 135, you can't even cook an egg at 135. So this says you can't make compost by heat. It'd be nice if we could, but you can't. It's it's a biological process. So then then that's when you cure it. And you're gonna be turning that stuff for the next six, seven months. And for the for the material to get back, it's microbial level because we you wiped it out. There's an argument to be made about cold composting. And that's basically what uh, worm vermiculture is, is cold composting. We're not using heat. And as far as the pathogens, it's been shown over and over and over and over that in the vermiculture process, the pathogens are neutralized. So in a sense, the the material is pasteurized when it's done. And I don't think you can make a better investment, especially a medical grower like yourself, than getting worm bins going. Because it will elevate your production, the quality of your uh, medicine. You'll just have a better product to help the people that you're you're trying to help. For sure. No question about it. There's no new program out there that's going to come close to organics. None of them. None. And I don't care how cool the labels are, you know, the the goofy names and I mean, really? (laughs) Cha-ching? Okay. Uh, yeah, that sounds real medical and spiritual. Yeah. Okay. And that's funny you say that too, because somebody in chat was asking what that was kind of their question was basically, do you think organics is just the current fad? No, I, I didn't even ask it because I, that's the answer I thought too. I don't think it is either. I think, I think this silliness, uh, what it really kicked in about 33 years ago. See, like in 1985, when you went into a grocery store, you had two products. You had General Hydroponics and then Dynagro. And and then you had Dynabloom. You know, uh, now they have other products. But, okay, that was it. Okay. And then... it just went nuts. I mean, all these products like this new line and that new line, have you ever read the label? 
take your camera and take a picture of the goddamn label of five products that are grow. And then when you get home, put them on your computer and it's the same stuff. I mean, ammonium nitrates, ammonium nitrate. I don't care what you call it. It's ammonium nitrate. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, yeah, I just, I have zero respect for that industry. I mean, one product is $700 a gallon, really? Kiss me. You know, it's over 99% water. Kiss me. You know? Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, moreover, I don't think that uh, it is like a fad. And yeah, I know we kind of discussed too a little bit earlier about uh, how some industries can push the science of things. I think actually, you know, cannabis is going to be one of those things that, uh, you know, it's already happening. Uh, big pharma, all that want to push, push, push. And I think they're going to put the, the studies into, you know, microbiology and uh, what's going on in the soil. More or organics i think that's where it's going to end up lying right there is you know i think the plant in general at least as home growers go that's where it's the direction it's definitely headed is organics organics in the in the uh food sector uh is the fastest growing sector in uh uh large distributions like your Kroger's and I don't even know all the names anymore because everyone went out of business and got bought, but um, that's, that's where it's at. I mean, I was in the produce sector and I can remember when you couldn't give uh, organic produce away. And now you go into any grocery store and there's an organic section and, and some are more complete than others, but you know, for your dinner, food items, real food items, besides all the packaged crap that I'm not real sure that's organic, but it doesn't take much to get a federal certification. But um, in the area of in the area of agriculture, there's three there's three stages. So if you're growing plant food uh, crops and you're just you know, doing the whole Monsanto thing, that's called conventional. And then as you wean off of that, you now go through transitional. And then the final is uh, certified organic. And in Oregon, for example, the Oregon Health Organization, it takes five years to become certified organic. So it's not like you walk into the agriculture office and say, well, I quit buying Roundup, so I'm organic. That doesn't work like that way. They're going to be out at your farm several times over five years, inspections and doing soil tests, and you know, and not every state's that way. I don't know what the laws are in your state, but they may be different than the one you're adjacent to, uh, another state. So each each state sets up their own rules, but Oregon Tilth was the first. And uh, now we're up to, I think, 30 states have Me Too saying whatever Oregon does, that's our law. 
because the people at Oregon Tilt are really radicals. And uh, they don't, you know, USDA is worthless. It's a toothless tiger. But to get Oregon Tilt certification, you got to work for it. So I mean, but even other countries have Oregon Tilt certification. It doesn't, you don't have to be in Oregon to be certified Oregon Tilt. I've purchased products from Peru, believe it or not, canned uh, fruit. I think it was uh, cherries. And it had the uh, the logo on the side, Otco, Oregon Tilt Certified Organic. I couldn't believe it. I think it's far Run from... I'm no, sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, I just think it's far from being a fad. I think it's the only thing that's going to save the human race is, you know, we've been on this uh, binge for 75 years since the end of World War II, and the system is broken. Dead soils, I mean, how many chemicals can you pour into it? See, the thing with chemicals is that every year you have to add more than the previous year. Whereas with organics, it's called soil building, not soil depletion. And it's we can take agricultural waste and we can get into a good discussion about the best way to process that. And in some cases, it may be mycelium. In some cases, it may be thermophilic composting. I mean, there's different avenues and how we get there. That's not really as important as that we do that. And we recycle that agricultural waste and we're, we're building our soils, not just depleting them with chemicals that get leached out and into our water tables. Uh, Runboy7426 would like to know your thoughts on organic produce from Mexico. Wow, that's a... Yeah, I, I don't know. I have my doubts. Uh, the same doubts, though, that I have when I go into Walmart, which isn't very often, and I see organic produce. I don't know. See, see, it isn't the word organic has become so politically charged. And it's more important, in my opinion, to know which agency are we talking about. I, I'll give you an example. The one in cannabis that's really big is called OMRI. OMRI is not a certification agency. They're a listing agency. And then if you go to their webpage and look, look up that their charter, it states in the first paragraph, we are not a certification agency. They rely on the rules of Oregon Tilth and the one in California, it's called CCOF, uh, Certified California. California Certified Organic Farmers. So here's what, so Omri can't say you're organic or not. They can say that you're Omri listed. Okay. Now, what does that cost? Here's where it gets really interesting. They get a piece of your action, a percentage. So the more you, your company makes, 
the more you pay. How do you like that? Really? Yeah. So they're yeah. just investing in your product by giving you the stamp? I don't know. They, but I know this. They that pretty much go, take ownership, it sounds like. <laughs> I know this much. We'll give you the I, stamp, but we get a cut. When I go to their webpage and I look at their board of directors, you know, the, the players, the cast of characters is like, you guys are scientists? I mean, it's almost comical. You would think, well, like, we'd have botanists and, you know, geneticists. You know, right, wouldn't you? Not a veterinary assistant. Uh, well, anyway, go check for yourself. Yeah, go check out Omri sometime. And look at it with the, uh, I'm going to be really critical here. And, you know, I mean, by re- read their charter. And then look at their board of directors and think, gee, does it really matter what they say? I'm betting that you'll come to the conclusion that I did, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. No, not really. Hey, look. Well, you, you got, I questioned it when they you said they get a portion of the sales, yeah. basically, for that stand. Yeah. That loses, for me, loses all credibility. Right yeah. there. It's right, right in their there. charter. They explain it to you. Yeah. It's based on your gross. So let's say you come out with a better, I don't know, uh, aphid killer. Okay. And so the first year you gross, we'll say for sake of discussion, a quarter million dollars, which you probably would if it you know, worked, right? So here's your stipend that you have to pay based on those sales. Now, let's say you double your sales and you get up to half a million. Like one day you're gonna wake up and go, I'm paying you how much for that little thing on there? See, I use the phrase this way, I'll buy Omri, I'll buy Omri, I'll buy a product in spite of their Omri label. It's not a reason for me to buy. I mean, I'll check into where the product came from. And that's easy. It sounds easy. like the the old Tommy boy. Have you ever seen the movie Tommy boy? No, but yeah. It's Chris, actually more Chris like Farley? The, it's more like the Godfather. It's, it, well, no, no, no. It's much like this. Well, Chris Farley is, it's a funny movie. He's a salesman. His dad was the founder of this company and he was like the salesman. And the, the son uh, tries to step up to save, save the company and he goes selling in his dad's place. And he deals with this uh, one customer and he says, well, does your product have a warranty stamped on the box? And he's like, no, we sell a quality product that we believe, and it is warranty, but it isn't on the box. And the guy says, well, my customers need the warranty stamped right here on the box. It gives them a warm, cozy, cozy feeling. I'm all safe. You'll be taken care of. It sounds like the, the Omri certification is much like the warranty on the box kind yeah. of sticker. Exactly. It's just there to make them feel all warm and yeah. cozy, you know, about buying that product. Yeah. 
it's um you know it's what's really sad is look at it from my perspective for a minute so i got involved in this many years before it got monetized like it is now i'm talking about the nutrient sector all the brands which a lot of them now are owned by smg uh scott miracle grow you know they bought uh sunlight supply which gave them botanicare that was a house brand for botanicare was uh sunlight and they had all the grow stores on the west coast i don't know about where you live but they were the ones that actually supplied the different uh incarnations and so my point is that i've been through every fad and watched it you know first it was the black gold era and then we moved to fox farm motion forest and then silliness like uh roots organic that's my favorite um let's see cuz they're based here in portland there's i mean everybody knows everybody here that's what's funny like who packs their stuff all those labels i just mentioned they don't pack their own stuff you know what it costs for a commercial uh soil mixer we're up in like 300 400,000 if you're doing of any size so you outsource it now here's where the problem comes in so let's say that you find a soil that you like for $15 we'll say at i don't know some famous grocery store in the midwest all right now remember when that soil was mixed and bagged there was $5.50 in that just for the mixing and bagging okay so we're now down to 950 and now that 950 you got the distributor which would have been sunlight supply and then you got the retailer right oh and let's pay the guy for the actual materials he probably want to get paid too right see what i'm talking about there's no money in soil the money is selling you amendments a program a new program and by god if you bought fox farm motion forest you want to use fox farm newts right tiger bloom whatever whatever the brand it does it doesn't matter it's the same game okay like i tell people if they could they give you the soil here take it we'll help you load it in your car as long as they can get the pesticide fungicide and herbicide business from you that's where the money's at you buy the stuff out of china already made comes in 55 gallon barrels you get it cleared through custom it goes to a mixing plant it's put in a bottle as the label goes on i mean this is as cut and dry as it gets all this malarkey of pictures of people in in white coats in a lab it's not a stock photos from adobe yeah so what are your thoughts on some of these uh two parts say salts you know that aren't full you're not buying all the water and the costs are a little bit further down well a good example is i don't remember the chemical but that part doesn't matter <clears throat> This is on a 3 4 years ago I was in a uh grocery store now at a business and picking up some smart pots some big ones 
that they had ordered. I had ordered them and they got them in. And so I went down to pick them up and they were helping a gentleman. Uh, he was buying a five gallon of product and a flower pro bloom product. And it was from advanced nutrients and it was almost $650 for this five gallon jug. So he's paying his bill, you know, and whatever. And I paid for my, and he left and I paid for my thing. And I went over and I took a picture of the label with my cell phone. So I got back, I hooked it up to the computer and I called it up and it had, because you're required by law, you got to have the percentage on there of each component. Otherwise, if say your kid drinks it, you can't go in and say, well, I can't tell you what's in it because it's proprietary. You know, if there's compound A, the doctor needs to know, you know, at what strength is it something to worry? You know what I'm saying, to neutralize it or whatever. So I looked up this five gallon bucket of all the chemicals and actually the company was in, oh no, I wasn't Michigan, it was in Colorado. They're a company that sell all the salts. So if you know the recipe or formula for your hydroponic program, you can buy them all those different things from them. So I'm using their broken case price. In other words, I'm not looking at the price for a full bag. I'm looking at what, how much I need to make this five gallons or whatever it was. Okay, 20 liters or whatever the hell it was. All right. I figured it out, man. There wasn't even $10 paying full bore broken case prices on these chemicals. There wasn't $10 worth of chemicals. There was more money in the packaging and the, and the plastic jug and the label. I promise you. You know, because we're talking special injection molding for the the cool look we've got the cool handle you know and you got the label with the airbrush work yeah 10 bucks worth of goddamn chemicals that makes me feel bad too because <laughs> i actually do kind of work with a company that's pretty similar to oh, sure. again, my uh my uh my my hydro store probably doesn't like me according to what you're saying because i only go in there and get my cocoa it's the only thing I get from my hydro store. So they're probably making zero off me. But I actually deal with another company that uh, it's called, uh, what is it? Uh, generic Fertilizer Company. And it, it's, a, it's a, a salt company. Basically what you're saying there, just like you're saying, whatever recipe that you want, if you're like, oh, I like advanced, you could take it to them and they'll you know, mix it up for you exactly for, he says, at least half the cost, you know. And so even with that being said, you know, you've basically took it down to about 10 bucks in, you know, supplies. And even at my cost, you know, I get a nice supply. It's like a thousand. I can make a thousand gallons with the salts that I got, which takes it down to about eight cents a gallon, which rises about about 60 for uh for me and you're pretty much telling me that's costing him 10 
So he's probably making a cool buck fifty off of mixing it together and shipping it out in a in a brown in a, not a brown paper bag, but no no hype label. You know, just here's two bags A and B. Uh, I can't find it right now, but it's in Seattle, and I know the first two words are custom hydro something, and that's the place where you get all the stuff to make your own hydroponic solutions. And to do that, you only need a book by, I can't remember the author, but it's uh, Hydroponic Food Production, which is used at the uh, university level. And it has nothing to do with cannabis. It has to do everything with basically how the Dutch created the uh, indoor hydroponic uh, tomato business, buying tomatoes, uh, those bell peppers of color, like the red, orange, and yellow during this time of the year, uh, hothouse cukes, the cucumbers that are wrapped in cellophane. Um, very few, in other words, you're never going to find, find hydroponically grown uh, strawberries. All right, that isn't going to happen. <laughs> um but anyway, this company, Custom Hydro, and I, and I can't remember the whole, you'll find it though. You can get all the salt you want, custom blends. I mean, this isn't rocket science. I, I swear, there's more money that goes into the artwork on these products than the actual materials. A phone call, you know, boom, can you mix these? Yeah, sure. Yeah, do anything for money, you know. You want a bag of A with two bags of B? Sure, get it for you. It really is a horse business, man. Think about this. When you were a little boy, you probably got told that fairy tale about Jack and the Beanstalk. But probably by the time you started kindergarten, you'd figured it out that, you know, it really didn't happen. And think of the people that no matter what Pied Piper comes down the lane, they're off on this one. The new smoke and mirrors. What are we doing this week? Oh, we're doing boron chloride. Oh, okay. Is there like a deficiency? Oh, yes. You know, they'll put a, post a picture and all of a sudden, you know, this is somebody you should listen to because they had a, an epiphany on their Android phone looking for, you know, something relative. I don't know. It just it blows my mind. The the way it's like, we're going to do it this week. We're going to be concerned about this. Okay, why don't you, like, plan your work and work your plan? And don't be so obsessed about what somebody putting pixels on your monitor thinks about what you're doing. How about that concept? So. I agree. I agree. Just to confirm what you're saying here, Run Boy, seventy four twenty six said he wants vendors for sunlight supply, and they always said nutrients are the gasoline of the hydroponic industry. Oh yeah, <laughs> pretty much saying what you just said there, for sure. Well, you know, it's, you know, you know, you're in trouble when you look on the label. The uh, USDA and the Federal Trade Commission, FTC, 
uh, yeah, Federal Trade Commission, gave uh, manufacturers a pass. At one time on the label, they had to use the word water. If it was 90, I'm not joking either, 99.2% water, it had to say water. Now they get to use a term called inert ingredients. Smoke and mirrors, so like, I bet these scientists, it's probably something really special. No, it's water, which may or may not be dechlorinated before it's used. Okay. We are talking about barrels of chemicals that are ordered out of uh, China. And you, you know, you dilute it to whatever it is you're trying to achieve. You know, I kind of talked about, you know, we were, you had just talking about uh, the fads basically kind of growing. You know, this week it's this. And, you know, these companies, I said this the other day, you know, these products, we were talking about Power SI. It's everywhere. Power SI. It's going to change your garden. Power SI. You know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a lot of these companies have selected a lot of these faces that are pushing these products purposely. That's what I, you know, to get other people's going, oh, you know, that person's using it. It's got to be what's missing in my garden. That missing piece this week. You know, and it's it's said that it's constantly being pushed out there, you know, these next new level products. You know, you gotta have this, you gotta have that. And it's it's kinda sad that uh, you know, some of these very skilled growers aren't necessarily jumping on it just because of free product or the promise of free product in the future, which is, you know, it doesn't take much for uh some of these uh, younger growers to, I say younger, I should say newbie growers, to, you know, they latch on to just about anything they see that, you know, somebody's a good picture of a bud or a nice picture in a garden, they're like, oh, well, that guy's using that, and they feel compelled almost to try it, you know, these days, and it's, it's really sad. I was in a debate with a gentleman who fancies himself to be a consultant. <clears throat> so he sent me some photographs of one of his clients' uh, gardens. And I called him. I said, I can't do this in an email. If I had an operation and somebody working for me was in charge of that garden, I'd hand him my laptop and give him 15 minutes to update his resume before I had him frog marched off the property. I said, that is one of the most pathetic group of plants I've ever seen. There's no density on the buds. And then he says to me, this is a funny part. He says, well, you know, I've seen some pictures of your plants and uh, it looks like it take a long time to trim them. And I said, hey, dickhead, that's kind of the point. All right. <laughs> I mean, this sparse thing that you're producing may be fast to you know, process. But, I mean, what are you pulling? Like, you know, these are outdoors, too. I said, what are you pulling? Like 12 ounces of plant or something? And that's when he hung up on me. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, 
think about this using Coots Mix in 800 gallon pots. So 800 gallons is four yards. That's two full pallets of, of soil at your uh, Home Depot. That's a lot of soil. So do you, uh, with that being said, do, is there a good starting source you suggest when you're putting together your mix? You mean the base materials? Yeah, yeah. Okay, like, uh, for example, um, even if your local Home Depot or Ace Hardware doesn't carry sphagnum peat moss, their ship-to-store program will, and you don't pay any transportation charges. Um, You can also, a lot of companies have ship-to-store. Walmart, but the ones Home Depot for sure and Ace Hardware, because those are tend to be, uh, uh, they're like a franchise. So it's one of your neighbors that owns it. It's not part of a big, you know, corporation thing. And um, you'd be surprised how much you can buy on ship to store. So you can get your uh, aeration materials, like say Perlite. That's pretty popular and it's always inexpensive. Uh, there's, believe it or not, there's a thing called the Perlite Institute. I'm not joking. And most of Perlite has nothing to do with soil. It's used in concrete as a material for like tilt-ups. It's in the formula of, of making the slabs or tilt-up building, that type of thing. So that's, they they have a complete listing of every uh, perlite factory in the United States. And you'd be amazed at how many there are because we use a lot of concrete. This isn't for soil, you know, for potting soils. It's insulation. It's a number of things uh, that it has a, a application with. So there's another way to get that material, even if you're in a, a more rural area. Um, if you are, you know that every once in a while you got to go to the big city. I mean, that's just reality, you know, to some degree. And then, um, like for worm castings, find the the <clears throat> old retired guy that sells fishing worms in your area. But the easiest way to find good sources is if you have a community. Uh, farmers market type thing on the weekends during you know certain times of the year. Go and talk to the people running those booths. People like talking about themselves, and you're talking directly to the producers. They're going to know every source in your general area, as far as you know worm castings and you know who's got this and who's got the best prices for general soil amendments. And that's my my number one advice is go to your farmer's market and talk to the participants there. It's a good thing to support regardless. You know. Yeah, I definitely uh, like to support my local people. That's for sure. And me, myself, I learned that lesson as, uh, you know, in the trade. I'm a carpenter by trade. Okay. And as much as we all love uh, 
Home Depot and everything, it really stunk to watch all these mom and pop lumber yards uh, go down. Oh, I know. And uh, it's even more so, like, as, it, you know, Lowe's went down, they're one of the people that just chased it. Home, you know, Home Depot and Lowe's chased all, everybody out of business. And now a lot of places, these Lowe's have closed down. And now that these Lowe's and Home Depot are backing out of some of these small towns because they don't have the business, there's no longer these mom and pops for generations that supplied these small towns with stuff. And in my small town today, because I live in the middle of nowhere, I uh, headed across town to get some things and... Uh, big portion of uh, my route was blocked off and I had to go detour. I got to the other side and uh, found out what was going on. My local family lumber yard that had been struggling forever since the Home Depot had opened up in the town probably about you know 15 years ago had burned down. And, you know, it broke my heart because that was the only place I had in town to uh to get quality lumber source quality lumber you know now you go to home depot you got to take that home and nail it up otherwise it twists and turns and i thought to myself as they told me what was on fire i was like oh that's they're not coming back <laughs> they're not gonna come back i I, you know, I hope they will but i'd seen them struggle for so many years and just watched all their you know heard their all their inventory burned you know it was sad to hear and i was Man, who's going to fill that void now? Nobody. It's just gone. And uh, it's sad to see these bigger box stores. Like, you know. So with that being said, when I've seen that start happening as they come into town, I started supply, started hitting the local hardware stores, lumber yards, you know, farmers markets, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a firm believer in supporting my local producer no matter what it is anymore so yeah especially in times like now it's it's even more important you know i've i yeah this this pandemic made me more of a believer in that too as we've seen things not become available as much you know what i mean meats and stuff and well my local grocery store didn't have you know beef and chicken but the guy down the street that had been raising cattle and you know what I mean? He was full. <laughs> he had, you know, why not, you know, it should have, you know, them people like that, we should have been supplying all the smaller people because when things go get tough and things go off the shelves, get taken off the shelves, yeah, it, it actually comes down to pick and choose who's getting refilled at that time. So we need our local people to help keep that chain going. The uh, farm store that I shop at and recommend to people, as you live in this area, they've been in business since 1938 and not in the form that they are today. Uh, Originally, they were domiciled in a dairy and the farmers would bring their milk in where it would be weighed because that's how you you uh, you don't sell milk by the gallon; it's by the weight, butterfed. And then they would pick up supplies, you know, feed supplies to go back to their farms. 
And so eventually it morphed into this and morphed into that. And then in its current form, this is like about 30 years old, close to it. And it, they cater to the organic uh, farmers. And in some things, they're grandfathered in for the entire Northwest. So that meaning that if you buy product A, that they agreed to carry they get a fingerprint on each bag that you buy, even if it comes direct from the company. Does it make sense? In other words, you created the market because you carried it. And so any sales in your, your territory, which is like five states, you know, they get uh, an action on it, which I think is pretty cool. Also, it shows me that somebody really was a goddamn good negotiator. So... Um, you know, they were like the first ones to carry basalt rock dust, which in the world of rock dust is considered by many people to be the preferred version over like say azomite or bentonite, zeolite, those kinds of things or Canadian rock dust. Basalt is specific to volcanic rock milled and not milled, but crushed down to a consistent size for easy application. It's not chunky at all. It's like the, think of, uh, hmm. let's see, salt, that size. So it can be mixed with water and then applied that way and then the water drains off. But anyway, that's more technicality there. But um, So we can we order uh we go there to buy our materials and everything's in full-size bags so if it's more than you can handle then you know give it to somebody i mean you know a 15 dollars bag of 50 pounds alfalfa might be more than a lot of people can handle but hook up with somebody you know figure it out how to buy things and split them and uh you wouldn't believe the money you save. Here's a good example. Uh, there's a company out of Eugene called Down to Earth. You may or may not have their products in your local store. And uh, they have a lot of single products like kelp meal or oyster shell powder. And then there are some of their mixes. They have several mixes. Okay, so they're a full line product line. Okay, fair enough. But all those products, in some cases like kelp meal, it doesn't matter what the label says. It's, it's the same species of kelp harvested in the North Atlantic. There's only two real big companies, uh, MaxiCrop and uh, Acadian Sea Plants. So you can spend $6.50 a pound if you buy it, it says down to earth on the label. If you buy a full bag, it's a, less than $1.50 a pound. That's full bore retail, no discounts at all, right? $1.50 a pound versus $6.50 a pound. A no brainer, really, that's how you save money. Cut somebody else in on the deal. You know, I've been 
as long as there's farming in your area, there's farm supply houses. And uh, there's there's deals to be found. Uh, look mainstream stuff. I source my molasses from there. <laughs> I do use some molasses. <clears throat> I heard you kind of not, like, uh, not suggest it when we were talking earlier, but I do uh, spoon feed the a little bit of molasses. I don't use a lot. I'm only using uh, probably about three tablespoons per 17 gallons of water. Just a little bit for the microbes, a little bit for the plant. I'm not that's like nothing. overdoing it. Yeah, that's enough. Um, yeah, I, yeah. It's not a big deal, you know, one way or the other. Um, I just, people that live and die by some of these. Postulations, how is that a nice word? It's not science, it's postulations. I think, I believe, okay. Um, I'm talking about like, eh, it doesn't matter. There's just some things that, you know, need to be proven. And uh, before, you know, I could recommend somebody drop two grand on a Vortex uh, compost tea brewer. I mean, you know, kiss me. That money could be put to, like, good use. Imagine if you took two grand and all the silliness, you know, involved the microscope and everything, and invested that in a massive worm operation. You're done. You need a new hobby. Once you got worm castings, your your, uh, problems are over. Just beware of anything in a bag at a. At so, a I mean, this. This yeah. might be a trick Paul, question here, but it sounds like you've already stated the answer. But Paul B would like to know what's the best organic. Ad- Is it just the. I'm sorry you cut out the best things, everything's in there. I'm sorry for flavor. What in your opinion, what's the best best organic input for flavor? Kelp. Kelp meal. Because think about this. Kelp's a plant. And it lays in this particular species uh, is Okay, from the North Atlantic, and it accumulates 83 elements. And so because it's in the plant material, it's already been chelated. So it's bioavailable. So when we add kelp to our soils, the uh, good, goodness, the, the, you know, the, uh, it's not just the NPKs, what, 400 compounds, you know, Algenic acid, mannitol, uh, I can't remember, I'm sorry, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's the only plant on this planet that produces algenic acid. It's the only place you can get it is from kelp meal, brown kelp, not green, not red, but just brown. That's the major, anyway, there's like 1900 
uh, species around the world of brown kelp. So, and you don't need much. Oh, something told me there'd be one. Can you hear me? Yeah, now I can, yeah. Okay. Yeah, something took out my connection. I knew there'd be... Something told me it happened once. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, another question by uh, Runboy7426 here wanted to know, do you know how much, uh, do you know much about the species of kelp being grown and harvested off the coast of California and sold by Pacific Northwest Organics? Well, I, I suspect that uh, this, <clears throat> the species, uh, sometimes known as bull kelp, which uh, masses into big forest, which are really important for uh, mammals, seals, and such, and what have you. Um, bladders, bladder wreck is another name for it. Those pods, those are air pods, and that supports the kelp forest. You know, suspends it. But here's where here's where to really study this subject is. Go to seaweed.ie, which is Ireland. Dr. Michael Gary. And it's the most uh, extensive portal on the subject of marine algae. There's three, like I said, three varieties, brown, red, and green. And uh, everything, there's more information I can even describe. But for a person who wants to seriously uh, study the properties of uh, brown kelp, that is the place to go. Highly recommended. Been going there for 22 years or more. Uh, where is it? Flora uh, Nugs would like to know, will silica affect the microbes or kill off the population? You talk, I, I assume he's talking about a silica product. And here's the challenge. Because the actual compound is uh, potassium uh, silicate, if I remember correctly. Um, so you can really do some goofy, well, you can burn the crap out of your plant, plants, bottom line. You know, um, 
you know, be cautious. That's the main, yeah, you high dose and it's very problematic for sure. I'm thinking specifically about a, a person that I knew uh, a few years ago and he was using the, see the base powder is called uh, Agsil, A-G-S-I-L, Agsil 25. It's a powder and you mix it to a certain ratio of water and that duplicates products like Dynagro, uh, Silica, uh, Rhino Skin from Advanced Nutrients. It's all potassium silica, right? So anyway, he got the numbers all jumbled. It doesn't matter. Uh, he had no business. Should have just bought the shit off the shelf. And um, yeah, he took a whole garden down. I mean, collapsed it. Sorry about that. Trying to switch back over to the computer. <laughs> it was fun. The other night, uh, they hit me so bad. The text, they were, uh, action was getting ripped out from under my feet. So I ended up having to pretty much do what I'm doing now. And that's like, my phone here as a backup in case internet underneath my computer. what's going on and it was funny as i went on to my computer or i was doing the show from my phone what they couldn't see was like my computer flashing back and forth it was like they couldn't figure out why they couldn't take me out while I was still alive when they were like attacking my computer like crazy like why is he still on why is he still on they kept trying yes, can you hear me now yes Uh, basically, Sammy Sizzle was asking your thoughts on BioAlive. Any input on BioAlive? I, I apologize. I'm not familiar. I wouldn't read much into that either. You know, it's more of like a micro input uh, from down down to earth. Is I pretty sure what it is. Oh, um, you know. Uh, 
I hate to sound like a broken record, just use good worm castings. There's more microbes than you can believe. It's, you know, it's a good thing. It's not like a broken record. It just applies to so many things when it comes to the cannabis plant or just growing in general, I think. Well, yeah, it's, you can't get much more science than that. Um, there's a woman, I believe she has her doctorate now, but she taught at University of North Carolina. And uh, basically, she's like one of the chief people of vermicomposting. Rhonda Sherman is her name. And she has a book that I highly recommend for anybody like yourself or your size, garden, you know, and larger, how to set up without breaking the bank and how to run a legitimate vermicomposting operation. Just think about this. You can produce a material that even if you're not interested in using, it's of a, a value to others. You know, we're talking 400 bucks a, a yard. So anyway, something to consider. You don't do anything. I mean, you know, they do all the work. <laughs> right. Well, and you know, one of the things that interests me at the most is just, you know, recycling a lot of stuff sure. that I could keep out of the dump. Yep. Yeah. And for me, it's becoming more and more important because, you know, out of the blue, I, uh, this is how far off I'm in, like, the nowhere land. Uh I do not have a garbage man, you know, but it, when it comes time to get rid of the rubbish, it has to be loaded up into my pickup truck. And we all have like a trash packer can where we take everything and it gets, and they just eliminated a lot. They, they put a limit on how much we could take. And it's like cut in half of what I usually would take. So now since then, the whole idea of wanting to like, compost and you know stuff like that the earth the uh the worm bin composting i've actually even you know looked into a little bit of the bokashi breaking things down with bokashi that i can't you know break down in the other ways the means yeah. and, stuff. and uh man it really is appealing I, I, like i've said i'm almost afraid to go down that rabbit hole because i'm afraid it's going to be too deep <laughs> I'll have a bed for everything. <laughs> well, I think uh, there's nothing mysterious. You know, this the universe is driven by microbes and enzymes, as much to the chagrin of the fertilizer salesman that wants you to believe it's, you know, phosphoric acid and ammonium nitrate and something that still defies this uh, legitimate description, soluble potash, you know, I mean, I honest is just try it once. That's all I can tell you. And anybody else, I mean, you know, find the guy who, who sells worms, the fisherman, you know, just get a few handfuls, whatever you can get. 
I, you know, it's it's more difficult than you know this, what you're paying for from a a hydroponic shop is convenience. And that's problematic, I think. Um, let's see here. The Riffin Fat Boy would like to know as well, uh, what's the maximum depth of humus you want for your earthworm to be? Uh, 21 inches maximum and build up to that. Start at six, increase it by three inches, maybe every two weeks. Okay. There's a lot of good reasons for that. Um, don't just, you know, pour it on. Uh, layer it up and let them grow, you know, and expand. Then you get worms all throughout your substrate. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. It makes sense to me. Okay. Anyway. And just think aeration, aeration, aeration. That's why the smart pots are perfect. And or that type. I didn't mean I'm not pimping that brand, but I mean those those fabrics are not fabric in the sense that you and I think. Like I said, it's made out of post consumer plastics, which means that if it doesn't work out then you take them to a laundromat and run them through the big Bertha machine they all have, right? Cost you like $5. And just uh, don't dry them, uh, spin dry them. And it looks like he just uh, received them in the mail. I mean, they're perfect. That's why you can always use a big pot, you know, like just to test something out. I can't wait to put the old pots to use. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, every day you're marching towards a goal of being self-sufficient, and that's you know there's a satisfaction in that, a personal accomplishment when we can reduce by as much as possible uh, our dependence on things that are imported from somewhere else. I have a paper I want to uh, share it with uh, Aaron. <clears throat> Excuse me. Anyway, it's using vermicompost to replace uh, peat moss, which is con can be controversial. And I want to get into that, but this is a way around that using vermicompost. Now you got to increase your aeration percentage, right? Uh, because you can't; it's just too dense. I don't know that you can grow a plant successfully in straight, at least not what I make and others, you know, when it's made correctly. I don't, I, but yeah, you'd have to, I don't know. I'd have to work it out in my head, but it would be something like maybe 25% castings. Uh, anyway, yeah, it would, there's, there's a way to do it. I just can't think of it right now. I'd have to, 
<clears throat> but it would, you know, pumice would be, in my opinion, and, but what about people like yourself? You don't have volcanoes in Michigan, you know? So no. again, then you're having to buy a product and having it imported or, you know, uh, you're part of the world. So far better to find something suitable that's localized. And that's why talking to the, like the people at the Saturday markets is such a neat idea because they're going to know all the nuances and who's got what and, you know, what you can special order, whatever. It's worth a shot. So, uh, Driving Herbs would like to know if you know anything about the horizon theory, the solar horizon theory. And if so, uh, what would be a good setup for cannabis? A proper I'm setup? sorry I don't, and I apologize. Right on. Well, you have your own method. Why, uh, you know, it works. <laughs> it works. You know what I mean? Why necessarily? This is a real minor part of my existence. I I devoted far too many years over silliness about, you know, I made all the mistakes everybody makes. I just one day went, you know, this can't be rocket science. And I proved that it it doesn't have to be. You know, I don't want to walk around with a goddamn pH meter hooked onto my belt so that I can whip it out at any moment and do something with it. You you don't have to do that to grow a plant. And uh, I think it's, uh, I don't know, people just make work for themselves that isn't necessary. It's just another plant. I agree. I agree. I think I, I went out on a li- on a limb the other day and kind of was, uh, I don't know, blowing off some steam, I guess. And I think it got misconstrued from my level of knowledge on growing. Basically, what I was saying there is same same along the lines of what you're saying there is basically it is a weed, and you know it can be simply grown. But what I was saying it was more over about. Uh, what's being put out there as far as information, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, a lot of it is great information, but some of it's almost too sciencey, you know, for cannabis, you know, the level of might, you know, knowing microbes and exactly what's going on, the solar process of fungi bacteria levels and all this and that you know basically saying is it's great to know this if you're willing to step up to the next level and become you know a massive scale grower but most of these people that are tuning in these shows are home growers and I'm afraid that a lot of these shows are just scaring the shit out of 
people, you know, with the terminology and, you know, some of this stuff going, wow, you know, I thought it was just weed. I could just grow it at home, you know, and now that, you know, some of the stuff that's being talked about is so in-depth that I think it's scaring off some of the, the would-be growers, you know what I mean? And I'm glad there's systems like yourself, you know, water only, foods mix that, you know, it's basically all you need. <laughs> you know what I mean? If I you think- want to take it to a deeper level someday, you don't have to necessarily make a science out of growing weed. It's, it's a weed. You know, if you've got the basics inputs, you, you, you can have success without knowing the science of it all, basically. What I did or tried to do was say, look, here's how soil's made, or you know, potting soil, a commercial product. I don't care what the label is, they're all the same. Bad. Here's how you can put your own together. You can control the inputs, save money, and not have to dick around. You know, get a bike. Go learn how to ride a bike around town. Cause just water the goddamn thing. You know, if you don't want to do that, hook up Blue Master. You know, something. Um, it isn't rocket science. And get over trying to worrying about what Joe says, you know, you should be doing, you know, screw him. Uh, you know, he might be a, cl- a clown that's never grown anything. I mean, you wouldn't believe how many people run around the cannabis thing uh, giving advice. You've never grown a plant successfully. Um, it's embarrassing. I'm embarrassed for him. So... Using with these windows popping back and forth. You're not working. I can't tell if you can hear me or not there. Yeah, no, I can. Okay, it must. That means my uh, computer speaker or microphone isn't working. Yeah, there it goes. <laughs> well, this would probably be just for the time to anything. Time to, you know, round this out. got to be getting a little confusing now with uh, the windows popping behind and on your head there, be coming in and out on the two different devices. Usually take cut it off right about four twenty. We've almost reached that mark anyway, so Okay. Uh I'd like to 
thank you very much for coming on and uh, dropping knowledge with me and uh, the chat here. Heck, they're still 86 watching right now. So they're very interested in what you've got to say. I can't thank you enough for uh, coming on. Uh, I'd also like to uh, extend... Can you hear me now? Now can I can. Can you hear me now? Yeah. You can hear me. All right. Uh, I appreciate you coming back. Hold on. I have My phone's a couple seconds behind. Sorry. See, this is what I'm trying to avoid right here. Uh, I, uh, keep in mind, uh, the Zoom numbers are always the same. Uh, I would appreciate it if you kind of tuck those aside. I don't know if you follow the show, but uh, we have the spotlight version of this. And then sometimes we have what they call the rabbit hole. And that's where past uh, the rabbit hole is most certainly open to you. If you would like to come back on and enjoy it, uh, join us at another time. That'd be pretty awesome. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed uh, talking with you. And, uh, yeah, I'd like to apologize if I've made things too complicated. Uh, That's part of my, I don't know, personality. I I tend to be pretty analytical. And um, I want people to have the information so they can make their own decisions about what, uh, how they want to, you know, grow their plants. Uh, I, uh, I've had success, more than success, uh, using this method and, uh, you know, you don't need much. And, you know, I mean, most of it we can do ourselves and that's really what it's about. Well, no, you far from made anything complicated tonight. You've explained everything very well and made it very understandable. So, yeah, take the complicatedness out of it for sure. And uh, you have taught myself and I'm sure many others a lot tonight. I can't thank you enough for coming on. One other thing I'd like to get from you before uh, you depart there is uh, I do what is called, well, basically it's a sound bite. It's pretty much will be like the commercial for this episode. You kind of remember the old radio, uh, hey, this is, you know, the Bon Jovi or whatever, not mine, you know, 105.5. Basically, just to skip the bullshit, what I'm looking for is, hey, this is Clackamas Coot, and I'm on fucking talking shit with Eagle, episode 247. Can you give me something like that in your words, your soundbite? Thank you for joining this great show. We covered a lot of wonderful things. And tell your friends, this guy deserves a thumbs up and a subscription. Have a good evening. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right, Jim. Thank you again. Time precious, and I'm thankful you gave us some of yours tonight. Hey, you guys have a good evening, man. You too.
Have a great night. Well, struggled through the end there, but uh, we definitely made it. Shout out to uh, Jim Bennett, Clackamas Coop, for one amazing episode. I can't thank him enough. It's been a great night. I enjoyed the conversation. So, so smart. Very smart gentleman. Very free with the knowledge. Oh, man. Can't thank him enough. Can't thank him enough. Well, <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and kill this and come back on and smoke one real quick. Just a quickie, just so I can do my shout outs. And uh, so I'm going to grab something to drink, come back on, do a 420 dab with you guys, and knock out the shout outs. So. Hopefully you guys will tune in for a minute, take another quick puff with me, but this does officially end the Clackamas Coop episode 247. So thank you for joining in. If you're not going to follow me over to the rabbit hole and have a quick dab and catch the shout outs, thank you very much for hanging out and hanging with me and uh, Clackamas Coop tonight. Greatly appreciate it. Please, this is the most important part. Don't forget to do something nice for somebody. Random acts of kindness do save lives. And in this trying time, we all need a little bit of positivity and help. Please check in on your loved ones. Make sure they have everything they need. And, of course, just make sure they're okay. Thank you, guys. I'll see you guys soon in a few minutes. I'll be right back. But... If not, love you guys. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace.